0: Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Howdy, folks. Adrian here again. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. It's pointless doing these things unless people listen, and people are. It's really great. Really appreciate your feedback. So thank you. Today on the Designer Maker Revolution, Mr. Jim Redgate, who's a classical guitar maker, he's amazing. That's all I can say amazing man, makes amazing guitars. These guitars get sold all over the world and he's got a hugely long waiting list and they're very innovative. And we talk about lots of the stuff that goes into those guitars. And you may not be interested in musical instruments per se, but if you're interested in design, guitars and musical instruments are a very complicated design problem. And with a guitar, you have to design the entire object it's got to sound fantastic. It's got to be durable. It needs to look amazing. It needs to feel amazing. And all of those things go into guitar building. And some of Jim's guitars may look pretty traditional, but what's going on inside them is far from traditional. There's new materials and new ways of doing things that make them really awesome. Just a heads up we start our conversation talking about glue. It's only for a few minutes, and if you're not into that, just skip forward, but bear in mind that glue is a very important component in musical instrument making because it's got to stick when you want it to stick, and then if you want to repair an instrument, it's got to be taken apart too. So we talk about glue from the outset, but it's only for a couple of minutes, so hang in there. I've had a little bit of time off just protecting from burnout. That's why I haven't posted for a couple of weeks, and I'm back on now, so it's all good thanks Heats, for listening once again really appreciate your company take it away jim redgate jim redgate welcome to the designer maker revolution thanks adrian pleasure we don't have to use these questions no not at
1: all like you can just go if you want we yeah, were talking about glue before yeah well i'm happy for you to guide me but i'll ramble on whatever subject you like That's glue is a strange subject to start on but uh Let's start. Glues. Okay, so when you came in the workshop, you picked up, I think, something I was working on and thought it was super glue, and I told you it was a polyurethane glue that I'm using, so... Traditionally in guitar building and, and also in other luthery, uh, people were using hide glues. And then, you know, I suppose we moved to a glue called tight bond, which was like the, the standard instrument glue, which I still use. Part of the problem with these glues is they're all water-based. So when you introduce water into timber, it swells. So if you're working very slowly and that moisture has a time to work out of the joint, then it's not a problem. But if you're trying to push things through a little faster... And you want more stability in the instrument then having a non-water-based glue is is fantastic and I use a lot of epoxies because I also use some modern materials like carbon fiber and Kevlar in my construction but then I discovered this polyurethane glue which is a foaming glue and it works with very tight joints and it's super strong it's as strong as epoxy but it also sets in about an hour kind of easy to clean up if you get it before it cross links and it's irreversible it's not affected by heat or anything so more and more i use that in my construction because the the joints are stable they don't shrink back under the finish i can work fast it's fantastic for doing any laminations so gluing large surfaces where you're using a reasonable amount of glue and you don't want to introduce water into the joint mm. it actually cures by absorbing a very small amount of moisture from the wood
0: mm. or the air
1: yeah and i also use a lot of psychoanalytes pronounce it cyanoacrylate cyanoacrylate i've never been able to say that but i know what it is it's super glue (laughs) well the americans call it crazy glue crazy glue i use a bit of that and there's some fantastic new products coming out now that are um they're using for finishes even and you've got accelerators you spray on them so there's a lot of new technology
0: yeah what about i mean luthiers need to repair their instruments too Mm -hmm. so hide glue is awesome for that because you can re-melt or re-wet the the glue line and take a fingerboard off or take it back off. Can you do that with polyurethane
1: at all? No, polyurethane's irreversible, but a lot of the, you know, with classical guitars, like for example, if you look at a Spanish guitar and the way that the neck is joined, a traditional Spanish guitar, which is a nylon strung instrument, they use something called a Spanish heel, which is the actual inside block that is inside the guitar at the end of the neck. The side's joined into that in a slot. So it's a permanent joint. You can't take a neck off one of those guitars. So in a way, gluing a neck on, say, with a irreversible polyurethane glue isn't really any different to having a Spanish heel on a guitar. If you, if you need to remove that neck, you can cut it off um, and then just rejoin it with a spine joint. It's a little bit different to steel string guitars where steel string guitars, they're under a lot more tension and they mm. pull up... Mm. and they need neck resets. Mm. But the other thing I do with my guitars is I use an elevated neck, which means that the fingerboard is sitting on a very thin slice of the neck wood, which is the mahogany that floats over the soundboard. So rather than remove a neck, you can actually just remove the fingerboard Mm. and then just replane that mahogany to change the angle, which also would change the height of the strings at the bridge, which is why guitars, for people that don't know, would need a neck reset the tension of the strings will pull the neck up, the action gets too high to play and the guitar has no adjustment left at the bridge. A classical guitar wouldn't really have as much
0: tension, as you said, as a still string
1: guitar. No, but the wood itself moves. I mean, and, Mm. you know, actually guitar necks can back bow against the pull of the strings. You can introduce tensions within the wood by using, say, water-based glues, for example, Mm. that dry out over years. Or if the guitar's in an unusual humidity the front of the fingerboard, which has no finish on it, can absorb moisture and swell. Gotcha. Or, you know, dry humidity can shrink, and that mm. can introduce a tension into the neck, which can pull it out of alignment. Mm. Yeah. Guitars generally take a while to get used to their environment and to settle down when they're, when they're newly built. And once as, the, as wood gets older, it becomes less reactive to humidity. Yeah, and there's a
0: technique now where especially fingerboards are being... Heat-treated.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they're actually even making um, ebony, like fake ebony out of compressing, I think, maple. Maple. Mm -hmm. Under a huge amount of pressure with, with some sort of glues and heat and it sort of cooks it and turns it black, which is really interesting, you know. If I could get my hands on some of that, I'd be quite happy to use it. But it's hard to find and sort of quantities I'd need, you know, to get a commercial supply... And also, it ends up being more expensive than the traditional woods. So, yeah. where uh, do you get your woods from? Oh, people ask me that. And I always say, aisle 53 in Bunnings. <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> get the 53. Oh. you sure it's 53? It has got to be a run on 53, 54. <laughs> I mean, there's a few questions people always ask. One of them is, where do you get your wood? Yeah. The other one's, do you make the neck? And then the other yeah, one right. is, is the rosetta sticker? Is it? And and the other one is how many guitars do you make a week? <laughs> uh, what are your answers to all those questions? Okay, so the wood... I used to go and buy, you know, large amounts of lumber from wood yards because when I started, there wasn't the internet and I couldn't really find any suppliers of musical instruments. They did exist mm. overseas, but I had no way of knowing where they were. So I'd go out and, you know, I'd go out and I'd buy a big... Lump of cedar and I'd bring it home And I'd plane it and then there'd be a big stripe Through the middle of it and I couldn't use it Or um, or I'd buy, you know, a cubic metre Of mahogany from a place called Baker Moon That used to... I know Baker and Moon And I've got lumps of mahogany down the side of the shed that weigh a ton you could use it for a bow carrot It's no good for guitar necks yeah, right. Good for making really heavy Les Paul guitars Electric guitars So, you know, I found there was a lot of wastage So once I realised that there were people That, you know, actually cut wood and supply Musical instruments there's a few places like madeiras Barber in spain there's matinda which is also in spain i buy from octopus woods which is in i think somewhere in the middle east to think about that and they i get cypress from them but they cut wood specifically they grade it and you just buy the master i buy the master grade wood the best wood i can get and you can't sort through can you you've just got to buy it well, yeah, that's one of the problems. But then, then mm. wood, like the, the soundboards, they come from different areas. So I went to Germany a while back and I've made a contact with a guy called Rudy Fuchs, who's a third-generation woodcutter, and he goes out and he, he's got a licence to cut two trees per year. and he cuts, not very many. No, and he cuts usually dead trees or lightning strikes, and he'll, he'll tow that out on a snowmobile in winter because they go into the forest and they don't want to damage the forest so they cut it they tow out the sections on a snowmobile then he splits them so when he resores them the grain will be running straight through the wood it has no run out or cross grain through the wood which makes it much stronger then it goes in a water bath soak out some of the resins and then it finally will get cut and it gets cut on the quarter which means that the growth rings are running straight through the piece of timber which which he used for musical instruments because of its stability and its strength. And then he also marks the log, which side is upwind and which, which side is downwind, because the upwind side, if you can imagine, the wood is less compressed than the downwind side. Because the tree is bending towards the downwind side, you get a denser wood on the downward side, and the lighter wood on the upward side of the tree is better quality. So your master grades come out of the upwind side of the tree, Then it gets hung in a barn for three years with three open sides. I can't remember which direction they're facing. You know, it's 200 euros a set per guitar for, for master grade wood, but it is really special wood. That sort of relationship with a wood dealer you have to build, and he doesn't just sell to anyone. He only sells to people who are introduced, and I got introduced through various contacts I have in Germany, Rudy Fuchs supplies my spruce, and he'll offer me. Some years he doesn't offer me anything. He says I don't have anything of your quality, and sometimes he'll go, "I've got six sets for you, eight sets." Sometimes you know, so that's enough for me in spruce. The cedars difficult. I recently bought over thirty thousand dollars worth of cedar in from Canada in a big shipment, and i not super happy with it. It's sort of, it's really stiff and it's a little bit heavy and make really good steel string guitars, but I measure the weight of my soundboards and mm. generally I like to use wood that's under about 330 kilograms per cubic metre. So It's pretty light, isn't it, for a timber? Yeah. So if you take, you know, and basically the reason I do that is um, it's strength to weight ratios on the top the lighter the top is for a given strength the more responsive it will be the less energy it takes to move that top when i say top i mean a soundboard which is producing the majority of the sound it has to vibrate like a speaker cone you know the lighter wood takes less energy to move therefore the guitar is louder and more responsive so straight away you can see most people will look at a piece of wood and go this is really good it's got you know it's really pretty and it's really even you can do that with a piece of furniture, but with an instrument, you've got this added sort of level. You, every piece of wood's a bit different, it's different weights. Mm. And you've got to try and pick the best material to make the best sound and it makes mm. an incredible difference, a really big difference at the top end.
0: All of this is like a really tacit knowledge that you've built up over years and years and years and years. Is there somebody out there that taught you this or is this something that you just learnt?
1: Well, you know, strangely, I just learnt it and... I would have loved to have been taught, but there was no one to teach me. And I sort of grew up in, in Adelaide and I didn't come from a musical background. I found my way into being a guitar builder, you know, avoiding the building trade in a way. <laughs> what um, did you start out doing? I started out as a plumber. Basically, I, I you know, I studied a bit of guitar uh, and then I sort of brought my background in in you know b- working with materials into my interest with music and joined the two together and I started out just really repairing instruments, my own instruments and I thought I'd have a crack at building one on you know built one on the kitchen table to a, an old book by a guy called Iving Sloan and mm, it was I know it. super old school you know you make all your own tools and and really that was kind of it's not it wasn't a good way to start because you know making one guitar took like eight months there's no way you can make a living doing that and so but I that's how I started and then I made another one and you know my my connection with studying music and the teachers meant that I had access to some fairly reasonable guitars that my teachers were actually bringing in from Spain and selling and some that they owned themselves So I was able to sort of study a few of those guitars and work out a few things. But basically the most difficult thing was the technique is like how to assemble something, how to make it accurate. And then, you know, I just learned from trial and error and mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes, Mm. huge amount of mistakes. Mm. And it's really different. Like I have, I have good, really good friends who are luthiers in Germany and they do this, you know, apprenticeship and they go to the schools and they, schools that teach violin builders and guitar builders. And they're incredibly careful and and everything is really amazing. And their first guitars are amazing, whereas my first guitar is horrible, you know. And, um, Do you still own it? Yeah, I still have it, but I don't show anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever play it? I pull out it out every now and again. It's not very good. <laughs> um, but part of that, you know, part of the thing about going through that process, I think, has given me a really, really deep understanding of the material because I've taken it to all its limits, I've made all the mistakes, mm. and I had to really, to persevere to get where I am in the building, I, I had to sort of have an attitude that when I made a mistake, it was a learning experience and not get too frustrated.
0: If only we could bottle that and sell that. It's not healthy, you know, like it's I, sometimes... No, I think, like, yeah. I think everyone has setbacks. Yeah. People live in fear of setbacks. Yeah. It stops them actually having a go at stuff.
1: I think I've always had this really in- incredible drive to make things work so if something's not working I can't stop until I make it work and it's really super frustrating for me if I if I start something and I'm unable to make it work.
0: And you did actually have examples of things that did work and worked really well because you, your teachers were bringing in mm. the gear so you could have a reference of which you could work towards but the thing that you don't know when you're starting out is whether or not it's you and your techniques or whether or not it's the material you're using or if there's
1: something else that you're
0: missing out on that you can't think of and all of those things when you're starting out
1: i it's a lot like learning any skill like if you're learning to play a guitar it becomes really um you know like you you learn a d chord and a c chord and then you won't be able to change from the d to the c chord and then one day you get it, and it's like you get a, you know, it's like it's a blast, you know. I can do that now, you know. And then you move on to the the G chord, and mm-hmm. and you know, you build up those skills. But I don't think any any musician would ever say to you, "I've finished," you know, like I've finished learning. That's it. No. I mean, it's it's that idea that you're continually learning, and I and I still feel like that in my practice that I. The next thing is really exciting. I'm not really interested in what I did six months ago at all. I, I you know, I want to build. build it keeps that next you going, one. doesn't it? It's yeah. that
0: passion. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: it's trying to get hold of something which is kind of moving and slipping away from you all the time. It's. It, it's I think one of your questions I remember was skimming them was about CNC machines, and that's mm. one of the reasons I, I don't use things like that. Is is that I, I feel like it gets in the way of, of being able to sort of make an instrument become what it wants to be. Because so I think, um, you know, if you, can, if you can make an instrument sort of become something interesting as an entity in, it, in itself, that's, that's what I'm aiming for rather than sort of if I was working on 10 guitars at a time, I would lose that connection with each individual instrument. Mm. And it's very much uh, a matter of influencing those pieces of wood into being, having a character and that character will differ between guitars, and then different people are attracted to those different characters it's very much like making a bunch of little people you know that go out there <laughs> that sort of interact with other people you know mm. they have their own little lives
0: there's so many yeah. so many things that come to my mind when you're saying that like there's an economic imperative there's your personal drive. How do you negotiate all of those imperatives and different constraints that are in conflict with each other Mm. you know you've got to pay the bills and
1: well yeah look it's strange because I mean probably when I first started that was an issue for me is like I I have to make you know I have to make money obviously I have to well at that time it was I have to recoup my materials so I can buy the materials for the next one
0: uh, just but to hold yeah. that thought I'm sorry to interrupt yeah, as well sure. but were you still working as a plumber then
1: no no what I did is I I did an apprenticeship as a plumber and I kind of re- realized it wasn't for me um I was very good at plumbing but it wasn't for me and uh I thought what can I do I thought I'll go back to school I was of the age where I could attend university as an adult adult education without actually matriculating so I didn't matriculate so I went to, uh, I got into the university, but f- before I got into the university, I did one year at Flinders Street School of Music, which gave me the kind of skills to audition for university to do a Bachelor of Music performance at the uni.
0: Yeah, so you went from zero guitar playing.
1: Yep. In
0: one year, you got into the con. That's a pretty good achievement.
1: Well, I was playing – I had a teacher when I was about 16 years old and his name was Tony Regano. I hope he listens if he's out there. Come on, Tony. He was fantastic. I mean, it was a bunch of kids around in a circle and he kind of got in the middle of the circle and I remember he had these pointy black shoes that would kind of tap the beat and point at you. And he would teach, you know, the first lesson you'd learn something like smoke on the water. And you'd jam, you know, you'd all play it. And then you'd turn around in a circle and you'd teach the next kid and they get the next kid playing that. And then you turn to the next kid and his kid was playing that. So that was Tony Regano. He was my first teacher. Mm-hmm. And then I had another teacher that taught me a little bit more, you know, did sort of a bit more popular music, learned a few chords and things. And then I announced to him one day that, oh, I'm thinking about auditioning for Flinders Street School of Music. Can you help me? And he said, oh, well, you either do that jazz or classical. And... So I'll teach you a couple of little classical pieces. I said, I don't think, you know, we can learn jazz that quickly. So that's how I got into classical music. And, you know, it's funny, those little connections without, you know, without Tony Regano and without uh, without my next teacher sort of teaching me a couple of simple little classical pieces, I never would have gone into classical music, I never would have become a guitar builder. So it's that's, so the way, that's isn't how it, it kind of worked.
0: You know, little forks in the road. Yeah. You take one lead down and there you are.
1: But the same teacher that was at uh, Flinders Street School of Music was also the teacher at the Elder Conservatorium, which is why I ended up there uh, doing a Bachelor of Music performance, which was, I mean, like you said, I hadn't been playing very long and it was extraordinarily hard. You know, I was up against people that had been playing, gone through all the AMEB system and... Uh, and I just launched in at, you know, sort of eighth grade level and I had to work really, really hard and I managed to get to a pretty good level. I got through with credits and then once I got through uni, I was teaching. Uh, So I had, I had a few students. I taught at Sacred Heart College and I also taught some guitar at home in -hmm. the evenings. And that was how I supported myself while I started building guitars. (laughs) Eventually, um, I thought, I'd like to give this a go as a business, and I went to London, and I had a couple of guitars, and I went into the London Guitar Centre, um, which was a really big deal back then, you know, it still is, you know, it's a place to buy guitars, and the guy in there wasn't really interested in me, but said, oh, look, you know, I'm busy, but if you sit in the corner there and play your guitar, and I'll, I'll um, you know, I'll uh, have a listen, you know, but we don't really need any more guitars so I was sitting there playing my guitar, and this guy came up to me. His name is Hucky Ickelman, and he is a German player who lives actually in Asia. And he said, "Oh, what sort of guitar are you playing?" And I said, oh, "I made it." And he goes, "Oh, I really like that guitar. Can I buy it off you?" And Good uh, God. and I said, "Oh, well." Then the then the shop owner came over and started getting <laughs> negotiated <laughs> <laughs> and i didn't really know who this german guy was i said oh look you know i'll give you my my phone number and if you get in contact with me i'll be back in australia in a few weeks and he got back in contact with me and bought a guitar yeah so then i thought well i was inspired i come back and my teaching jobs had dropped off and i was unemployed and there was this scheme called the Nice scheme new incentive, something or other, new enterprise mm. incentive scheme or something.
0: Basically, you get the dole.
1: You basically get the dole for benefits. a year while you set yeah. your business up. But they make you do a business plan. So they made me do a business plan. And, I, and part of that is to work out your marketing and how much you have to charge. And uh, I worked out that it was going to be very difficult for me to make a living in Australia. So I thought, well, I'll concentrate my business marketing directly to the U.S., There was no internet. I went and bought a fax machine, which cost me $500. It's a huge amount of money back then. And I went to the State Library and I went through all the phone books and got all the names of the big dealers in LA and New York and I sent them all the fax. And then I... um, Is this interesting? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Then you sat back and waited for the (laughs) offers to roll in. Okay, so then the fax fax machine sort of would go off in the middle of the night and I'd sort of leap out of bed and there'd be this fuzzy fax from the... Yeah, so a couple of dealers responded and said, look, send over some guitars on consignment. Uh. One of those dealers was a guy called Dan Zeff in California, in LA, and a consignment deal, you know, for a luthier, it's like, you know, you send off a guitar, they don't give you any money until they sell the instrument. Generally, people pad their shops with consignment guitars, so there's a lot on the shelf, but the ones they want to sell is the ones they got their money invested in, so... Yep. This is the story for Luthiers and probably a lot of craftspeople in different yeah. areas as well. I would say every craftsperson
0: in yeah. galleries, yeah.
1: But the first guitar I sent to Dan Zeff, he got it out of the box, he hung it on the wall, and a guy from Acoustic Guitar Magazine walked into the shop literally 10 minutes later and said, oh, have you got anything I can interesting I can review for the next edition of the magazine? And they had this thing called, this section on the back page, full-page photograph called Great Acoustics. And it was probably the fifth or sixth guitar I'd built. It had a full-page review in a worldwide worldwide sort of distribution, distributed magazine. And Dan Zeff rings me up and says, i got three orders. <laughs> Can you send me three guitars? And I go, what? And you know does he, did he pay up front for those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah see, that's... I, I think a, it was
0: preordained.
1: Well, I had a pretty good deal going with Dan Zeff until yeah, yeah. he went bankrupt. And oh, I, I well, got a... Um, mm. He owed me for a bunch of guitars and... And I got a letter in the post saying, can I attend the court in California, you know, to get my money? And that started a whole other chain of events, which led me to dealing with some other people in the US. And But I've always marketed overseas. Uh, it's only really when I became successful overseas, I think that I was starting to be regarded in Australia. Yeah. And then... About that time, the Gregorian brothers started playing my guitars, yeah. Slava and Leonard. Mm. And did you
0: foster that relationship or did they seek you out or did you bump into them? Or? Uh,
1: look, I really wanted to meet him and he'd heard of me and I just attended a concert once and then I just sort of hung around. He's really approachable, really lovely mm. guy. Mm. I just introduced myself and he said, oh, look, I'd love to try some of your guitars one day and, and i I took him a guitar to to try and he really liked it and then he said, can you make me one? Uh, I mean, that's got a really interesting story which ties in to the wave guitar model that I showed you before. The first guitar I built, hang on, let me think about this. Was it the first guitar built for Slava? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. So I'd I'd, I'd come up with this kooky idea uh, and part of what I do is experimentation and the way I always look at experimentation is if it works out, I learned something. If it doesn't work out, I learned something. Um, it's really important. It's research and development for me in materials, um, design, wood, all of those things. So I had this idea uh, that the best guitars, the best sounding guitars were ones that were collapsing. Basically, they w- they were falling, collapsing under the tension of the string. So this, when when you string up a guitar... It rotates the bridge. So it wants to dip down in front of the bridge where the strings are tied on on the soundboard and wants to bump up behind the guitar. And what it, that does is it distorts the soundboard into a corrugation. And that distortion gives the soundboard cross grain strength across the grain in the same way that corrugated iron is stronger mm. than a flat piece of iron. Mm. So as the guitars distort, they, they get this stiffness across the grain and then they actually start to sound good because the soundboard becomes stiffer and more efficient, less dampening for the sound. So, but, but it looks really ugly and then customers don't really want to buy collapsing guitars. So I thought, I just had this idea, well, I can make the corrugation in reverse and then instead of two collapsed arches, it becomes two supporting arches. So I made this kind of wave, corrugated wave top guitar Mm-hmm. Um, which I sort of called the wave guitar, and just it just so happened that the design turned out to be really ergonomic. It was easy to reach the upper frets by the way the the neck joined onto the body, and it slimmed out in that upper body from the corrugation, so you could get to these upper positions mm-hmm. easily. Also, it the thickest point of the guitar was at the waist rather than at the lower bout, so for your arm it was much more comfortable to hold and play. And that and the first one I built, I. I was building a guitar for Slava alongside her. That's Honey, my dog. She's just Hello, coming honey. in. She's just coming <laughs> She's in. Coming She's the workshop staffie. Is she going to help talk as well? She might. Yeah, she does talk at dinner time.
0: <laughs> or oh, when she wants to feed. Though.
1: Yeah. So um, so I was building Slava guitar at the same time as this one and I finished both guitars at the same time. Mm. This ex- crazy experimental thing that I hadn't told anyone about and and, Slava, and Slava's guitar and I strung them both up and the crazy experimental one was a better guitar. But Slava was expecting his guitar. He was living in Melbourne and mm-hmm. I had to send one to him. Mm-hmm. And in a kind of fit of whatever, fancy or whatever, I, I put the experimental guitar in the box and sent it to Slava and immediately went, my God, what have I done? Yeah. Because I didn't know Slava very well then uh, and he really just met him and and thought, oh, no, I've sent him this crazy thing. You know, he's going to think I'm an idiot. <laughs> It's a and, leap of faith, isn't it? And the next yeah, the next morning I, you know, it was, went Express Post, so yeah. I knew it was arriving in Melbourne the next morning. The next morning I got up and I rang Slava about 9 o'clock to go, oh, to warn him. And he'd already got the guitar. I think it arrived at 8 in the morning and he'd mm. been playing it an hour and he goes, oh, this guitar's amazing. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, it was, I said, oh, look, you know, I explained what had happened and he said, no, 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 I love it. It's fantastic, you know, yeah. like super open to new ideas and so that's the story of this wave guitar and then Karen Sharp who's now the professor of guitar at Griffith University she plays two of my wave top guitars that's my pencil falling out of my pocket she plays two of my wave top guitars and then Wolfgang Muspiel who plays with Slava and Ralph Towner in MGT he's got one and this model just sort of took off, and i'm I'm doing my best to deter people from buying it because it's fiendishly difficult to build mm. um and it looks really strange and unusual, but there's this kind of interesting desire for this wacky model i mean classical classical players are this really strange mix they're really conservative, but then some of the most radical things in design of guitars is happening at the same time with classical guitars. Why is that well think? I think. The need for volume and power in the classical guitar is stronger than their conservative urges. <laughs> um, so. That's a good thing. I think it is. And basically, I was part of a revolution in guitar building. Uh, I didn't use that word. Because this is because you're part this of the revolution. So you so are a saying. revolutionary. Yeah, I've, that's just come out. That wasn't planned. Um, <laughs> but the revolution in Australian guitar building was. A guy called Greg Smallman invented a, a bracing system which was, a, instead of a fan struts, which are little straight bars of wood in a fan shape, he produced a lattice matrix out of balsa wood and topped it with carbon fibre and made ultra-thin tops. Ultra-stiff, ultra-lightweight. Ultra-stiff, ultra-thin, ultra-well, mm. the tops are lightweight, but the guitars are super heavy. He made yeah, the okay. back and sides like a speaker box. And those guitars are still really popular. And John Williams started playing one of those guitars, you know, the famous player. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so his guitars sort of shot to recognition. And in a way, I kind of rode a bit of a wave of interest in Australian. I mean, there was Paul Hogan brought a Crocodile Dundee out and Greg Smallman had the Lattice Brace guitar. And um, it was a really really fortunate time for me and other Australian luthiers to to come in into building instruments because suddenly there was this interest in something new and I was interested in something new mm. and we had to learn to work with epoxies and carbon fibres. But at the same time in Germany, there's a guy called Matthias Dahman and he is developing a system uh, of building uh, which has become known as the double top guitar and basically it's a sandwich construction with two... Even thinner pieces of wood, like half a millimetre thick With a a matrix, or a, sorry, a material called Nomex Which is a Kevlar material buried in the centre of it So it's the same kind of construction that's used in um, high-tech air- aircraft And uh, now motorcycle fairings and you know mm-hmm. all sorts of yeah. Lightweight, strong we'll have structures.
0: To get some photographs of this and them up on yeah. the webpage so that people can see what it is.
1: So yeah. I'm I, I, a few years after you know working on lattice brace guitars, I became interested in this double top system. So I'm really one of the very few builders, maybe really the only builder in the world, who successfully builds in all styles. Uh, you know, most people are known for building it either being in the double top school or the lattice school and usually people that build in those styles don't prefer that style of guitar and they don't really consider the other styles but i also build traditional guitars um traditional classical guitars and i also have a really strong interest in building flamenco guitars which is uber traditional guitars you know i just love all of the sounds they all produce different sounds Mm. you know the the lattice brace system has a very thin top and a very strong bracing, and the, the reason you're doing that is to try and make the top of the guitar, which is the soundboard, I should explain this, uh, which moves as light as possible. Um, so by making the wood very thin and the bracing out of carbon fibre, it's very lightweight and therefore it becomes more efficient and the guitar is more responsive. Now, the double top does it in a different way. The, the top is thicker, so it's, a, it's as thick as a traditional guitar top, which is around about two or two and a half millimetres thick, and then you've got a very lightweight bracing on top. But interestingly, the weight of those two soundboards when you make them is about the same, which is around about 100 grams fully braced before it goes on the guitar, as opposed to maybe 160 grams for a traditional guitar. So there's a massive saving in weight. The difference in sound is that the double top, having a thicker top and light bracing, sounds more like a traditional guitar in its tone it's a thicker creamier sort of tone whereas the lattice guitar having a thin top sounds kind of sharper and harder and the critics of it would say kind of honky like nasal Mm. sounding so Mm. it's produced a very different sound and that's that's caused a lot of division between classical players some people hate they sound i don't like those lattice guitars they sound like ducks yeah, or people might not like the double top sound. Mm. I've always tried to produce a very traditional tone even out of my lattice guitar, so I do something very different to the people who follow the Greg Smallman design.
0: Is that because the market's asking you for that? Or just because that's what you want to do? Or
1: um, No, it's what I want to do. I, and I think there's a niche. See, there is quite a few people that, make copies of greg smallman's Mm. so greg smallman was the first one that came up with this lattice guitar system but you know everyone that's building traditional fan brace guitars is copying torres Mm. everyone's copying someone else everyone's riding on the shoulders of someone else Mm. so you know these key figures come up and they're the first one that's come up with the idea and and that's interesting to me um, but it's not interesting to me to copy that idea. Right. I just want to take it and be influenced by it and try and apply it in different ways. It's
0: very, very rare for a new idea to come along, isn't oh, it? Ex- extremely rare. Extremely rare. And it'd be great to hear uh, Greg Smallman's take yeah. on where he ha- why he did this thing. He must have done it just as an idea. Let's have a go. Well,
1: my, my understanding is he's building model aircraft, so he... Yeah. He came from building Balsa aeroplanes, yeah. and again, I think, like me, he wasn't brought up in a lutherie school. He had no, yeah, he had no kind of limitations set on him by the expectation and of what he should be building. And he was sort of building in a, you know, in a back shed in the bush somewhere up in New South Wales near Glen Glen Innes, I think, at the time. And mm. and that's what he came up with, you know. And, and you know, like this, like me. I mean, I had a, I had a bunch of sort of some people would call it lucky, but I think you make your own luck, you know, like mm. I had this this guitar magazine, mm. Greg Smallman, you know, he had John Williams come along and start playing the guitars. I mean, if he hadn't built an amazing instrument, then John Williams wouldn't have been there playing the instrument. It's not mm. it's not totally luck. I mean you've gotta you've gotta put yourself out there, but you've also gotta follow you can't create those situations. They come along. You have to create the right you have to fertilise the ground. Fertilise the ground, be available and when they the seed, do. hope the mm. seed falls in it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: I read this book recently called The Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. And he talks about how people who are successful actually get there. And yeah. the common story is, you know, I made my own luck, and da 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 Yeah. But the reality is there's a huge amount of luck and there's also a huge amount of being in the right place at the right time.
1: Yeah. But I think also... Most people you would speak to would say, I I can't really do anything else, so this is what I do, this is my identity. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm. like, I'm driven to it. I I think before you were asking about money and I rambled on about something else, you know, whether or not uh, that was a consideration for me. And it's not, you know, like, I I don't think about how much money I'm getting for for an instrument. I don't try and maximise my profits. But the money is a consequence of doing your best for a very long period of time and also um, being there for the players, Uh, you know, so listening to their concerns, listening if they have a problem or a critique, you know, taking it on, backing up your work, even years and years later if you've built something because basically a good guitar is built right on the edge of what the materials will do and it's risky. I mean, it's like walking... I always say it's like walking to a cliff with edge of a cliff with a blindfold on you know how far will you let yourself go before you drop over the cliff you don't quite know how these guitars are going to stand up in 10 years time mm. and so if something does happen you know what do you do do you go oh well sorry my warranty period is a year or do you go to that player and no, i send your instrument back and you know put in two or three we- weeks work to fix it and don't charge them which is just generally what i do you know uh, unless someone's done something really stupid, I'll try and fix any instrument that yeah, I've Yeah,
0: if the truck's driven over it, that's not your responsibility, but if the no. brace is popped...
1: Yeah if, if, yeah, if there's some problem which yeah. I think might be linked to my design or my construction.
0: I can see why luthiers would be really set in their ways because that sort of integrity would be expensive.
1: Uh, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, it's not only expensive in monetary terms, it's expensive in, in time. So, uh, and often a player, if you get a great player, and they have a prob- problem with their instrument, they, you know, they, if you don't fix it for them, they have to move on to another instrument. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it's, it is difficult, you know, to balance the, those things, so the the idea of, you know, am I a businessman? Or am I you know I'm a charity for musicians sometimes, or am I um, you know what am I? am I am I helping you know helping other people's dreams? You know you're part of that, you're a conduit for that. You're making basically you're making a guitar, you're you're making something that someone communicates to someone else through. So, you know, there's a player, they can't do anything without that guitar. Mm. You make it for them and they can sit in a concert hall and make a bunch of people cry, mm. you know. So, you're you're making that something something which joins those two things together and that's more than money. I mean, you know, you can certainly look at it from a business point of view but that's not what I do. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's been good for me. I've been successful. So, you know, I can earn a reasonably, reasonably good income at it now. But it hasn't always been that way, mm. and a lot of a lot of the trouble with starting out as a luthier is it's not your normal business model where you they'll tell you minimize your stock, you know, don't hold stock. With with guitar building, with craft work, with making furniture, you've got to stack your wood with shelves because sorry, shelves with wood because you can't um, you can't buy that wood very easily, and when you see it, you've got to grab it. And you've also got to season it and you've also got to know your material. So when you're working with wood um, to make a, an instrument and it's got, that wood has a certain sound, it takes your few guitars to dial in the characteristics of that wood. It comes down to literally 20 of a millimetre. Mm. I used to say tenths of a millimetre, but I'm working to 20ths of mm. a millimetre and less now. That would be super hard
0: to even measure.
1: Oh no, it's got digital calipers. And i use uh to to thin woods, like for example, for making a double top where it's you've got a very thin piece of wood, um, I sand it on a light box because seeing the light come through it is more accurate than yeah, well, than right. measuring it like to get yeah, it even right. and it's i mean to to illustrate why why it's so difficult to get these these dimensions correct is like if you take that when when you take a thickness off of a piece of wood it's an exponential reduction in strength so i could say to you like if you can imagine a a roof beam if you took if that roof beam is 200 millimeters high you take 10 percent off of it 20 millimeters doesn't make much of a difference but when you get to the point where it's just holding the roof up and you take 10 percent off then it then it collapses so Mm. with a guitar top you've got to make the the top move to make sound it's got to move but if it moves too much, it collapses. So the more you can make it move in a controlled way, the better the instrument it is. So how do you walk with your blindfold onto the edge of the cliff and make, make that guitar top just strong enough, mm. you know? And what is just strong enough? I mean, do you want a guitar to last 10 years? Is that acceptable, a car will last 10 years? Or do you want to pass it down to your grandchildren? So I'll I'll get a lot of customers which will go, oh, Slava Gregorian plays one of Jim's guitars. I want to buy the best guitar I've ever had in my life because I can pass it on to my son and he'll pass it on to his son. It'll be a family heirloom. But a concert artist wants a guitar that sounds fantastic immediately. Otherwise, they'll go and buy another instrument. If you buy a guitar that sounds fantastic immediately off the bench, it's probably got a lifespan of 10 or 15 years. Good God, that is so interesting. Yeah, So, so what do you do? You know, you do you build the best guitar you possibly can, or do you build the guitar that is going to suit that person the best? Because the guitar you send to the person who wants it as a family heirloom, it it doesn't really matter to them whether or not it sounds amazing or not. I mean, it's just it's just they want it to look amazing. They want it to have the name on it, yeah, um, and they want it to last. Yeah. But what happens to that guitar if you sell it to them and then a bunch of other people see it and say, oh, I saw one of Jim's guitars that sounded like crap. Or, conversely, the other side of the, the <laughs> this coin is I saw a guitar that was 10 years old and it was collapsed. Mm. But maybe for 10 years it was the best sounding guitar ever, you know. So you've got to walk a really fine line. And getting back to the thicknesses of the wood, you know, if you've got a, a piece of wood that's half a millimetre thick and you're trying trying to remove a 20th of a millimetre of that piece of wood, so 0.5 of a millimetre, over its entire surface, which will gain you several grams in weight on the soundboard and and make a marked difference to the sound, you're removing 10% of the thickness of that that piece of wood. You you know, 20th of a millimetre makes a massive difference at that thickness in how the guitar will sound. Um, You know, so... And if you push that into the braces of the instrument as well and say, well, I mean, i make these braces, how do I shape these braces so that they respond and control the top in a certain way, but they still support the pull of the strings. It's a design problem and it's a really, really complicated design problem.
0: And you don't know if it's successful until you've strung it up.
1: No. And I mean, a lot of people don't understand why you can't just copy a good instrument and make it, make yeah. another good instrument. And you just can't. I mean... And I read this book a while ago by a guy called James Gleick called Chaos, and it's a fantastic book if you're a nerd and you want to read a good science book. And the idea of chaos theory, I mean, people have heard of the butterfly effect where, you know, you have this butterfly flap its wings and it causes a tornado over the side of the world. Um, I realized that this book had a lot of applications in what I was doing in that, the guitar is a really complicated system of interacting parts and once you change one small thing in one area of the guitar it it doesn't it doesn't isolate in that area it actually propagates throughout the entire instrument so when you get this this complex thing that's all vibrating together you can't really control the character of that instrument all you can do is control you know what you intuitively think it should be within a certain parameter and the guitar will come out somewhere in those parameters but when you make a really good guitar it's really weird you can make a you can make two instruments side by side and they're identical and one can be like fantastic and one can actually be horrible I mean I just basically put my foot through it and start again (laughs) and it's because of it's because of the onset of turbulence within the instrument so if you think of it and this goes back to the chaos theory as well if I'm sitting here holding a cigarette and I don't smoke but just imagine I'm holding a cigarette and that that smoke is coming out of that cigarette. It goes very, very smooth for about two or three inches or 50 millimetres above the cigarette. And all of a sudden it breaks into all these little swirls and eddies. Mm. I mean, you can imagine that, right? Mm. So that point where it breaks into those swirls and eddies is the onset of turbulence. And that happens in all systems, all complicated systems and things like rivers flowing downstream, breaking into eddies and currents. It's very, very difficult for a mathematician, you know, to actually compute what happens on the onset of turbulence because things become exponentially more complicated. That's what's happening within an instrument when, you, when you're when you getting to the point where the instrument is producing its maximum sound. It's, you know, its ultimate ideal sound and it's right on the point of what it can do. If you go over the edge just like by a twentieth of a millimeter, you can push that instrument into a turbulent interaction uh, which totally destroys the sound. The instrument mm. just starts to fight itself.
0: This strikes me as a very courageous exercise that you're doing in so many ways.
1: I've always said it's a you know it's really, really important to a really small number of people with long fingernails on one hand <laughs> and no one else gives a shit.
0: <laughs> Except for their listeners.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, it's, you wonder why you're doing it because, like, going, getting back to the money thing, I could dumb down the design and... Mm, make a whole lot more. Make a whole lot of money. Mm. But it's not the artistic path. I think the
0: challenge involved is super important. yeah. And I think that challenge needs to be honoured and, you know, just the way you work is the way you work and we need more of it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's important. I mean, it takes a certain type of character and I think it's the same character in a lot of artists and a lot of craftspeople that it's an obsessiveness. Um, it's not, you know, it doesn't make business sense. You've got to have not no. be driven by money. I don't think any artist um, is going to be look, that yeah. some
0: of them may be driven by money, but it's certainly not the reason you start.
1: I mean for me it's interesting as well because I you know, I don't really know whether I'm an artist or a craftsperson. I I think I'm a craftsperson in the building of the guitars and, and maybe the sound part of the guitars is where it becomes in, maybe more. Maybe You're of an, an art. engineer. I think I'm a designer. Designer. Um, a structural designer. And yeah. and I also I'm also an explorer Yeah. to see, you know, what materials can do. Like recently I've, I've started shaping the guitar braces. They're, they're traditionally like little bars of wood, like, mm. you know, like the little rafters in your roof. Mm. And I've started shaping them like, a, you know, running a half round route a bit down either side of them. So they, they're wide at the bottom and they come almost to a point at the top. And it's really interesting because at the edge of the brace, what you do is you scallop the end of the brace um, where it comes down to meet the soundboard. what I realized is that shaping the brace like this actually really changes the way the end of the strut behaves. So when the soundboard moves, it becomes much whippier because the end of the strut becomes weakens exponentially from from the way you've shaped the wood, whereas the strut will weaken in a very linear fashion if the wood is just shaped like a square. So that's something really simple. To explain that I've, you know, I've explored with a piece of wood, where you kind of look and you go, well, how could I, how can I change the way this piece of wood will behave by a very simple, you know, idea? Mm. You can totally make 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 something transform, you know, into into a different, almost a different material. And doing stuff like that is what really interests me and gets me up in the morning. But there's also, I'm um, really get interested in jigs. You know, like <laughs> I love jigs. <laughs> so do I. Um, not Irish jigs. No, uh, I don't mind Irish jigs. But um, <laughs> but now jig is a um, is a fixture. Well, it's an aeroplane going. Is a fixture um, or a um, template or something mm. you know which you which you uh, which assists you cut, cut or replicate or not mm. always replicate. Just sometimes just makes it easier to manufacture a part. It also makes those parts, like, it does replicate them, so it makes them repeatable. So it becomes mm-hmm. almost like your pattern or your history of, of building. So you can look back through your jigs and, and that's your history of building. But designing good jigs is, is a real art form in itself. And if you make good jigs, it actually makes, makes... Because you've got more control over the dimensions of your instrument and you can make them um, more similar... You, you can then evaluate the instruments a little bit better. And, and part of the way I improve my instruments is a, li- a little bit like a Darwinian process. So if I make an instrument that's better, I try and work out what's different about that instrument, yeah. which is difficult because of the chaos theory, which I just yeah, explained. Yeah, totally. Plus you're
0: making a whole different yeah. set of styles of instruments. You can understand why somebody would just concentrate on one style because they'd get that down. Yeah. They'd really know it, but if you're doing five or six different styles of instruments, you're following a the things.
1: Things do come across. Um, they do cross over. Um, mm. But the Darwinian, you know, idea is is really, you know, it's kind of really accurate to what I'm doing because often I'll go down a path, I'll think something an instrument has made it good, um, I'll build, you know, a, a special instrument and then I'll go, oh, it's, it's because the tops, you know, half a mil thicker in that area or something and i'll go down that path and i'll build 20 or 25 instruments and then i'll realize no actually it's not it's like a it's like a dead end of evolution (laughs) and then you sort of of come back you go 20 instruments back in your in your list and then you Mm. go off down another path but have you recorded all of this have you got documentation oh yeah i've got books that's Yeah. Uh, every instrument. and I've Well, every instrument up until I lost my book in a fire. And then... Um, Uh-oh. And then, um, you know, since then, you know, so I've probably got the last uh, 300, 250, 300 instruments. And before that, I lost the records. Yeah. What happened in the fire? Well, I moved I moved down here to Port Nalunga, down to the beach, and bought a really old ramshackle house and just set myself up under the house with a temporary workshop while I built my dream workshop out the back, which is a great big shed with a nice wooden floor in it. And I had it all built and uh, I just moved all my machines (laughs) and wood in it. (laughs) And then... (laughs) Don't tell me
0: it's (laughs) only a few weeks old. That's just not fair. No,
1: it was. It was literally like it wasn't really... It wasn't finished, which is kind of a problem was also why I didn't get insurance on it.
0: Oh, no. uh,
1: Because it's under construction. But it was full of everything, all my templates, patterns, moulds, woods. Mm. Um, And I woke up one morning and there was this kind of flashing light and I thought, oh, geez, the garbage truck's here early. And then I sort of, as I was sort of waking up, I heard a bit of commotion. I heard someone scrambling down the side of the house and I looked out the window and the fire department was out there and the whole thing was just like a blaze. So it took out the entire workshop. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that was really hard because I was, I was, um, I took, basically six months off work to build the workshop yeah. and all of my records, all of my tools, all of my jigs and moulds. in the wood? All of the wood. Work in progress? Work in progress, workshop, the lot was gone. And then on top of it, it was about this time of year, which is sort of April, mm. and it just started to rain as well. Uh, anyone that's had a fire knows that smell. It's like a creosote smell and it's kind of greasy and waxy and I was just in there pulling out things and trying to salvage, salvage anything I could, but it was a real mess. And then I was six months behind and I was also burnt out, you know, like I physically burnt out from doing it. Physically, emotionally? Emotionally, everything. financially, mm. you know. So to pull myself up from that was, was hard, yeah. Can you talk about that? How, what, how did you do that? Well, I just sort of sat there and looked at it and went, oh, okay. It was a strange. It was strange actually. I didn't freak out. I just sort of sat there and looked and went, oh, okay. That's happened. What am I going to do? And then people started turning up. Friends started turning up. And you know, what can we do? You know, can we? You know, can we help you? You know, pull it apart. Can, you know. So then, then I had sort of 15 people around, and, and which made it a lot easier because, you know, like I felt str- strangely exhilarated that all these people had came, <laughs> come over to help and, you know, and touched that people, you know, supported me. And uh, and I think really it was the expectation of everyone else that made me go, okay, well, I've just got to pull myself up and do it. And it was like, what do I do? Do I go back and do plumbing? Do I go get a job at Bunnings? Which is, I wouldn't mind doing this. I think it's really, it'd be really sort of low stress. <laughs> <laughs> i'd probably get bored I, it's almost my my no, always my joke last about six months it's always my joke oh jeez i'm gonna chuck up bunnings over this <laughs> should we give them a call but, um yeah we'll give them a call <laughs> but um yeah so so i think really it was the expectation of, mm. of everyone else and also mm. there was you know like obviously people came in and, and helped a bit and then some people stayed on and helped a lot mm. um Help me rebuild and, you know, get get things back up and going again. How
0: long did it take you to get going again?
1: Oh, uh, look, it probably took, uh, I would say, probably three or four months. But then I was, like, really burnt out. Like, I mean, I'm yeah. not talking about burning from the fire, but I was, yeah, you know, yeah, my body yeah. hurt and uh, my hands yeah. were almost kind of gone off my fingertips. And and then I had to build guitars. And, I mean, it was, it was a complicated period because I also... At that time, started the dealer that I was working with the US. I guess sort of saw it as an opportunity to say, "Hey, I'll sell. I'll, how about I sell everything for you?" Which meant I moved into a situation where I was only dealing with one person to sell all isn't my guitars. This is the dealer
0: that went bankrupt, is it?
1: No, this is the dealer that took over the dealer that went bankrupt. Yeah, who's uh, an extraordinary good businessman and has made mm. you know made me money and made himself money, and it's been a successful relationship. But it was difficult because it sort of meant that I couldn't deal directly with players and people I wanted to deal with. Mm. And it was many, many years before I kind of found a way to change my business model and get out of that again. So now I'm dealing more directly with players.
0: And getting the direct feedback as well.
1: Yeah. So, you know, that that series of events steered me in a certain direction for a while, which was another reason why I was not really active in the Australian guitar making scene and I you know all of my guitars went to America all of them yeah
0: yeah yeah a lot of um, people have lost buildings in the fires over summer which is Mm. kind of forgotten now unfortunately I think because we're we've got this virus thing going down Mm. if somebody's listening and they've lost their business Mm. have you got any advice or
1: oh wow any thoughts yeah, you know, it's sort of – it's mean, um, you know, like it's so, so hard. Um, I'd just say the thing, the thing that, like I said, brought me out of it was the support of friends. And also you've just got to – I think you've just got to weigh up whether if, if what you're doing is, is valuable enough to put yourself through dragging yourself back up to it. I mean, I didn't really have an opportunity mm. because I kind of – I'm driven to do it. Mm. But I suppose – yeah, it's, it's super difficult. I mean, it's really important, I think, that the government gives these people support because financially yeah. financially, it's so hard because you lose... Not only do you lose your building and your infrastructure and your stock, but you lose your, your ability to generate your income. So you've got to rebuild with no income. And some of these people also would have mortgages to pay and... I
0: would be yeah. willing to bet they'd be exhausted from fighting the fires as well. Oh, yeah,
1: exhausted. And
0: now we've got this virus thing going. Yeah. So people that were just starting to rebuild now have to deal with that. Yeah, crazy. I th- I'm I, feeling for them.
1: I mean, you know, they, people that I know in Candelow, they had the fires come right up to their properties and then burn, you know, like people I know didn't lose their houses, fortunately. But then there was a... Um, massive dump of rain <laughs> and the mountain washed into the river <laughs> i mean you know this stuff is like you couldn't write this it's like old testament stuff isn't mm. it it's it's um it's such so hard and then a virus comes along and these a lot of these people are now musicians so they lost all their income on top of all that Yeah,
0: there's no gigs
1: no gigs yeah yeah, so, I'm,
0: I'm particularly conscious of people that run gigs and festivals and...
1: Hit them really hard. Really hard.
0: How has your business fared over this foresting?
1: I haven't noticed really any anything yet. I build to order and I'm building several years out and there's, I could sell more guitars than I build. So I never have anything sort of sitting around unsold. Uh, so if, I haven't had any cancellations as of yet. And if there is a cancellation, I have a fair backlog of people. But I'm kind of expecting there might be a, an impact that comes in later.
0: Maybe a year down or Look, something.
1: Look, it could be people have lost money on the stock market, which they have. Yeah, okay. Or it could be people have lost their businesses. That, and the people that I deal with tend to have large amounts of disposable income often. Not the players, but the collectors. Mm-hmm. So it could be that, but also it could be, you know, who knows what's going to happen financially in the world. They're printing all this money and maybe there'll be, a, you know, some crazy hyperinflation all over the planet and no one's money will be worth anything anymore. So, was, yeah. so um, who knows, it's a really uncertain times. But at the moment I'm just doing what I do and building guitars and luckily I don't have too many overheads some I'm working from home. Yeah. So I can weather it pretty well.
0: You've got a good relationship with your neighbours
1: too. Yeah, my neighbours are great. (laughs) (laughs) So you
0: don't make big smells with the nitrocellulose lacquer? or
1: (laughs) No, look, I'm not too bad with it. I've got a proper spray booth and I don't use it that often. But you can probably hear the grinder at the moment. That's Phil next door. He's a retired fiery and he's always over here and sort of help. we help each other out with stuff. He's great. Yeah, yeah. Really nice fella. Yeah, yeah. My neighbours are great. Yeah. Yeah. It's a community, isn't it? It is, yeah, there's Tom over the road, he's a builder, and then we've got um, Bernie and Jane next door, they're, they're retired, they just hang out, you know, I mean, I live in a dead-end street, it's kind of like neighbours, you know, like uh, everyone knows everyone. And at
0: the end of the street is the sea.
1: Yeah, it is, it's awesome. awesome. Is yeah, really And awesome. a reef, do you go diving? No, I surf, yep. I go surfing, kite surfing. Do you surf every day? Not, like, every, if you could. not every day. Oh, Wow. You know, that's an alternate life. Like I, you know, I could, I could have become a surf bum and, you know, maybe, uh, I mean, I left school at 15. I've been working really hard ever since. So when I go surfing, I always feel a bit guilty. I, I come from a working class background. Mm. My, my family were migrants, very working class. And I think what was instilled in me very early is that you've got to work, you can't go surfing, but I love it. I mean, I probably wouldn't go every day, if it was pumping, I might. <laughs> <laughs> Does but I wouldn't go out if it was really, you know, like the, you know, people go out when there's no surf. What is it about surfs- surfing that is just so people are attracted to? Mm. That's a good question. I think it's tapping into something bigger than yourself. You know, this this things this swell this of energies like coming across the ocean and. And you hook into it. I mean, it's a really direct connection to a very primal energy of the planet. There's that. There's also the fact that it's a really great way to express yourself. I mean, you know, you you, you see this. If you talk to a surfer, they'll talk about it like a blank canvas. You know, and you're the brush. Really, <laughs> you know, like God. the wave is the, the wave. The wave is the blank canvas, Good and God. and you paint it with your surfboard. You know, yeah, like right you, yeah, it's this kind of incredible. I like anything with a board and anything with wheels, and I've just bought cars. A, I've just bought, bought, bought them. A old, well, I've got old cars, but I've just bought an electric skateboard, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I like snowboarding. Yeah, yeah, right. Snowboarding's great. Anything with board and wheels, yeah. bloody good. So, was, what cars have you got? I'm getting a bit old for it. One nice. of the one of the ads I read was um, uh, like I was looking for these electric skateboards, and there was some guy, and he said oh, like I'm Forty five and I've got to sell it because my wife told me to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh oh, okay, he, he
0: went and bought a better one i the a few. The few
1: years, <laughs> <laughs> I got a few years on him. So sorry, it was the last No question. he he bought a better one with the proceeds.
0: <laughs> he wanted to upgrade. He was just spinning a yarn. Oh
1: yeah. Like, I don't know, I've got no
0: idea. <laughs> That's bloody good. Yeah. Yeah, it's mm. good to have fun. Oh yeah, love it. Peter Walker, who makes surfboards, he was—he um, reckons that there is something fundamental about a surfboard. It's the only yeah. object which puts you in touch with nature as closely as that is. Everything else has got like other objects associated with it. With surfing, you've got the Very board direct. and you and the wave,
1: and that's all. Yeah. Although I, I'd I'd love to go wing wingsuit flying, I think ah. Uh, I think that would be the ultimate in, in, you know, I mean, then you've just got a little piece of fabric. It's you and the people die with that shit, man. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, when I say I'd love to do it, I can't, I can't see myself doing it. Um, yeah. But, but I just look at those things and think it's incredible. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, and you know, like surfboard design is really interesting too. I mean, mm. you should interview a surfboard designer. Um,
0: yeah, well, Peter Walker's he, yeah.
1: he's a maker. Yeah, of course.
0: Yeah. yeah. So he's but he does a whole lot of other things too.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've
1: I mean, got the, new names. I'd love to. The equipment. I mean, well, there's yeah, there's a few people around town. There's Leighton, yeah. Leighton Clark, Ding King. He's he's a local guy. Um, oh, there's people over on the west coast. I can't remember their names at the moment. There's some interesting people around. I mean, they've. It's, and it's also super interesting how you know your CNC's came into surfing and made a whole lot of pop-out boards, but there's still a really big market for custom... Is that right? Custom for the hand-shaped boards, shape? hand boards, yeah. Because hand shapers were really mm. experimenters. I mean, that was the other thing I could have been as a surfboard shaper. Yeah, I can, I can Be, see how that would Because it's like... It's like well, I think what interests me is the fact that it's you're chasing something that's really hard to grasp and it's constantly changing. Yeah. Uh, not only the object you're making is changing, but also your relationship to that object is changing so um I think the
0: science behind surfboards is a little bit simpler than a guitar I don't oh, I don't think the, oh, I reckon you've got you've got <laughs> flow at the point of yeah. the board yeah. and around the board and that's kind of it and how that flow is directed and how it's controllable with the guitar you've got all these materials that mm. come into play complex structures that come into play
1: yeah there is but there's I mean you know there's definitely a I mean, you could go down the rabbit hole with with surfboard design as well. I mean, there's all sorts of things about turbulence release off of the rails and there's the fin designs and, you know, there's the rockers and the materials. How do you make something light and stiff and how much flex you want? I mean, mm. there is, definitely is a rabbit hole there to go down.
0: <laughs> Sounds like that's where you're going to go next.
1: Oh, uh, you know, I've tried shaping surfboards, but it's too messy. Uh, It'd you know, be a smelly job. Smelly, messy it? job, yeah. 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 Mm. How important is decoration? Okay, so I guess people's perceptions of things um, happen on different levels. I mean, some people, you know, the priority is the sound, obviously, but then other people's relationship to how they feel what an instrument is could be about playability. Other people, it can be about beauty and mm. and design. And so the decoration on a classical guitar is, very, is quite simple, you know. I mean, hence it's called a classical guitar, not a Baroque guitar. So generally there's two elements which sort of relate to the, the identity of the maker and that is the design of the rosette and the design of the head of the guitar. And of course,
0: as everyone knows, the rosettes are pasted on. They're just pieces
1: uh, of paper. That's aisle 51. <laughs> <laughs> that's aisle 51, yeah, bunnies. Yeah, no, the rosette's made up of thousands of little pieces of wood into Do you a make into your mosaic. Own? Look, I, I, had, I used to, I have, I'm on my third rosette design. I made the first two designs, and then I discovered there was a, a guy in Russia called Dmitry um, Zerkov, I think his second name is. Starts with a Z anyway. Basically, I sent him a design, and he sends me the rosettes. So I'm just looking up there because there's a picture of a rosette up there. But yeah, it is. Um, it's my design. And I also send him the woods. So I, they're made out of Australian, some Australian woods. Uh, and he makes the rosettes for me now. So, you know, that's, they work at about $15 US that to, get is, to get him to
0: make how, them. How, how much would it cost if you made
1: them? Well, in wood, it would cost nothing because it was made from scraps. Yeah. But um, But in time, it would take me... For a relatively complicated rosette, I would say it would take me about six hours. That's not $15,
0: is
1: it? No. So it's just not worth it. No. Um, so it's still my design, but uh, I just, just get someone to make the rosette. Yeah. Um, so anyway, going back to the, the decoration, uh, there is some function, like the the purflings around the edge of the instrument, um, kind of like a hoop. I mean, they, they mm. kind of tie the instrument together and add some strength. seal the end grain. Seal the end grain. So they're important... Uh, and the finish is obviously quite important. But, I mean, to illustrate the the finish, the importance of the finish, I early in my career I built an instrument and I we used to meet, a bunch of people used to meet in this coffee shop, you know, on a Thursday night and I'd take an, an instrument down and, and you sort of get passed around and, and people would play it and drink lots of coffee and then give you a <laughs> bit of an evaluation of it. And I was so excited with this instrument I'd built that I mm. kind of took it down and... Um, passed it around and I got a bunch of comments which was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's nice, you know, like it's, I like it, yeah, it's kind of woody sounding and blah, blah, blah. And then I took it home and I finished it off and it, it hadn't been polished up. It, it was just, you know. So it, it had, just, been,
0: had the polish on
1: it. Had the polish on it, but, but it was just sanded down and not buffed up to a gloss. Yeah. So the next week I took the instrument back, buffed up to a gloss and finished off and people thought it was a different guitar mm. and gave me a whole bunch of different, adjectives you know describe it oh this is much better than the last one it's very bright and punchy and loud and I realized the perception of the instrument had changed because of the aesthetic of it so mm. on that level I mean I think basically if you if you strip it down to a really basic level what's happening uh, we're a bunch of meat with a brain and there's we're looking for serotonin or something you know, you know we're looking for a pleasure chemical and we pick up a guitar what chemicals get set off to get put into what receptors in your brain various things set off those receptors like i mean your ears you know if a nice sound goes in your ear you release a little bit of serotonin you know maybe you sniff in the sound hole you smell a little bit of you know spanish cedar and that sets off a little bit of pleasure um you look at it your eyes they set off a bit of pleasure so it's a complete package i mean Mm. and also from a i mean obviously the sound is the most interesting thing for me because that's the, the most elusive thing and the thing you have the least control over but beautiful design and beautiful execution is super important you know because we're crafts we're crafts people we've got to make something that inspires as well it's not only yeah. got to perform it's got to inspire you it's the whole thing isn't it yeah it's not it just does. one
0: little aspect of it it's the whole kit and caboodle musicians like anyone else would listen with their eyes and that's yeah. what you're talking about. It's interesting that you break it down even further, that it's these serotonin receptors. I think it's really...
1: Yeah, I think that's yeah. what... I mean, we're getting kind of philosophical no, here. Let's but let's go, I, me, man. I'm good. But we're, you know, like, just you get... You know, if you want to look at the nature of reality and what we are and how crazy it is we're here and how crazy we're playing guitar or sitting in a chair or something, I mean, it's really quite... Obviously, I have a lot of time to think about this in the workshop by myself. You've got to get out more. But it is kind of like, I mean, if you start looking at it on that level, it's kind of really interesting. I mean, you start getting down to what, you know, what you're doing and what your motives are, you know, because you can start to say, why am I doing it as well? Why do I want to release this serotonin in other people's Mm. brains? Mm. Um, Or in your own. Or in your own. Or maybe releasing the serotonin in other people's brains releases the serotonin in your brain. Who knows? And, you know, so it's really fundam- fundamentally, it's it's a very solo, lonely job. But what you're really trying to do is actually make connections with people through a musical instrument. And you're trying, like I said before, allow them to make connections with other people. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I see it kind of like a performance in slow motion. So if you if you're a player and you play a three-minute piece of music, you have the same intention for the other person, really. You're, you're trying to give them something, give them an experience, get a reaction, prove how good you are, all those things. It's, but it happens in three minutes, you know, it's a performance and it's done and dusted. At the end of it, they'll go, that was great, I did a good performance, or they'll beat themselves up about it and say, oh, no, I played like shit. Um, what I do is kind of similar, but it's on a different timescale. My performance happens over a month, you know. It's like making a recording or something, you know, and then, yeah. and then it goes out there and it gets evaluated in slow motion. And, but what it means is if, if, if you're not happy about what you've done, it, you know, it kind of lasts a lot longer too. Because
0: um, music is only there in the instant, uh, whereas a yeah. made object can... Last for fifteen years. Come back and or
1: bite you yeah. later in your career. Come back and bite you. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I find all that sort of really interesting as well. Yeah. I think about it a lot. You know, you got to think yeah. about something while you're working. I think about it a lot too. In fact, I've always thought about it. One yeah. of the
0: reasons of talking to people is exactly to answer that question: Why yeah. the hell do you do what you do? Yeah. Because it's not rational.
1: Hmm. You know, like I think about it as well in terms of my. Uh, my upbringing as well, and you know maybe I have three sisters we 're all high achievers, you know, and we 're all in the arts we 're all in creative stuff. interesting, you came from a working class background too yeah, and you know you kind of wonder why you know why do you have why do people have four children and they 're all high achievers and you know I think it was difficult my My family dynamic was difficult. we were migrants, we didn't have extended family around we were, so we we're isolated to some degree culturally we were really different like I would go to school and I'd have these really like English kind of parents and really English I'd say scones instead of scones and everyone would tease me or I'd, I'd, I'd go to the canteen and buy some sweets you know and um, so I was this little kind of English kid and a really kind of mm. foreign time and also in Australia at that time it was the you know it's very much about the the migrants that came over on the boats so there was Greeks and Italians and it's a melting pot but I kind of think about it and I think maybe am I trying you know do high achievers trying to prove something is that how they is that their ego making them high achievers or is it you know they're trying to what are they trying to do I mean I I don't really have an answer for it but I think it's kind of interesting. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a complex answer in the same way guitar Mm. is a complex object. Mm. There's 10% of that, 15% of this other aspect.
1: Definitely. Yeah, it's not one thing.
0: Your parents were working class, but were they intelligent? Did they have, if they could have gone to university, for instance, could they have done that?
1: Yeah, look, I was the last one of the children, so my parents were quite older. So my parents actually went through the Second World War. My dad was actually in the army in the Second World War, and my mum was like a kid who got evacuated from London in the Blitz. Mm. They didn't have opportunities like yeah. like we had. So, but mum was this kind of or well, is she's still alive? This kind of restless sort of spirit, and she always was creating things like she, mm. whether it be jumpers out of wool or you know making covers for the settee, or you know all that sort of stuff. Um, so there's always stuff like that happening, always making yeah, something yeah. out of nothing or something, repurposing something, which was really interesting. But then she, she took herself back to university and did a teaching degree and became a kindy teacher um, yeah, okay. in, in art, in, and did an arts degree as well.
0: Um, Is this when you were sort of, teenagers yeah this is when f- i
1: was young she put yeah. herself back through university yeah. whereas my dad was a plumber which is why i became a plumber uh-huh. did you work for him no i just wanted to be like my dad yeah, you know, yeah. I was well, this little boy what else but, have you got yeah i was a little boy i wanted to be like my dad but yeah, then yeah. when i went to the building side i realized it was just like the big <laughs> high school i was trying to get away from <laughs> <laughs> you know oh. so but the thing about dad is he had this you know, we had this back shed, and when I think about it, it was probably only about three meters by four meters, but it seemed like you know it was this huge, vast sort of opportunity for me playpen. as a kid. Playpen, you know, there was tools and bits of wood, and Dad never threw anything away, and I'm still a bit like that. It's, if you look at my yard, there's shit line everywhere. I love shit line everywhere. Yeah, but the idea is, you know, you you take things. If you if the washing machine goes wrong. You don't just throw it out, you take it apart first and you see if you can fix it. If you can't fix it, you, you see how it works and then you pull all the bits out that might, might be able to use. So dad would pull all the bolts out of the washing machine and they all go into a box and then he'd pull the electric motor out of the washing machine and that'd go in, under the bench, you know, in case we needed an electric motor for something and then he'd pull all the knobs off, you know, and he'd pull, even pull the wires out of it yeah. and, you know, and, and then we'd make stuff. Uh, so I didn't really have a lot of toys I just made stuff in the shed and that's yeah. where I got my technical skill from and also the yeah.
0: there's a sense of play within the experimentation Oh it's
1: fantastic yeah exactly yeah. but there'd be people who
0: maybe didn't like the sense of play with a box of crap in the corner would they it would be daunting it would be mm. but for you you can see that there's potential there that there's yeah. an opportunity there
1: Yeah and also look, it's it's super creative like I think it's just as creative as making a piece of sculpture and putting it in a gallery. I mean, depending on what your intention is, of course, but as far as creating something out of nothing and then making something interesting, I mean, if you were to put that in a... If those people were then to put display that in a different way, put it in a gallery and have an exhibition, they would be called artists. It's just what you choose to call yourself. Um, mm-hmm. I've got a got a really good friend who likes collecting junk, and he makes crazy stuff in his back garden just for the hell of it, you know. And yeah. you look at it and you go, well, that's, that's like <laughs> that's crazy stuff, super man. interesting yeah. sculpture, you know. He carves things out of little bits of wood that he finds around. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's not, he doesn't have exhibitions, doesn't call himself an artist.
0: Um, not yet. Not
1: yet. So uh, I think there's a bit of art in all of us. And what I was getting back to was I think my father was, was like that. He was super yeah. creative. Yeah. He asked me if they were intelligent. They weren't, uh, they weren't academics. No. But they were creative and resourceful, yeah.
0: Yeah. Not everyone who's an academic needs to be intelligent. Like, there are different types of intelligence.
1: Yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, and, I th- you know, I think the sort of skills you pick up if you look at intelligence just in, in being able to use tools, for example, you know, I was showing how, someone the other day how to use a s- scraper. Uh, like a scraper is just like a piece of metal. One there. Yeah, there's one there. It's it's the simplest tool you can yeah. get, but it was like the test of how good a cabinet maker was in the old days was to like give them a scraper and say so sharpen that and scrape a piece of wood, and you yeah. can tell you can tell a lot about a cabinet maker, old school cabinet maker, by how they use a scraper, how they're able to sharpen it, and I mean that's kind of a body intelligence, you know, it's a learned intelligence that you get. An aptitude to skills and tools, and then you can apply that
0: to other things. Sharpening a scraper is something you can be taught, and there's a big difference between that and what you're doing, which I think you've taught yourself may not be the right, really way. Though I'm thinking of this, but I, I think it's a very courageous act what you do, like on a day-to-day basis. Hmm.
1: Yeah, it is. I find it actually, it is stressful. You know, like people. People say, oh, you've got a great job. You could just go out in your back garden. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, they, think, <laughs> they think I fiddle around. And I do have a great job, um, but it's not what they mean. They, they think I fiddle around, you know, in a little apron with little bits of wood and, yeah. and there's no stress a involved. But it's really and, ins- yeah. it's super stressful because the whole time you're worried about, have I thinned that piece of wood too much? And you don't uh, know until you've strung it up? Or, you know, you don't really know. No. And um, yeah. and then the stress goes on. Like, I feel responsible for every instrument that I've built. I feel a weight of responsibility. Yeah. I didn't just sell it and it went out the door and it's no. gone. Every one of those instruments has my name on it. And everyone is a representative of my work. I think a lot of artists say they would love to get all their old work back and burn it. Because yeah. they feel like they're, they're good work. They want to be remembered for their best work. And I have this slight conflict in that. I don't want to burn all my old guitars. But I have this conflict in that because I was self-taught, I think the quality of my instruments, the quality of my instruments has improved vastly yeah. over the years. And yeah. particularly in the last sort of 15 years, I think I've really hit the sweet spot in my building. Even though I'm, I'm still pushing myself to get
0: better i feel like going from the 10th of a millimeter to the 20th of a millimeter
1: well i feel like the you know the possibilities i've got more understanding of what's possible with the material so i can get into the finer details more this knowledge that
0: you've gained over all this time are you going to pass Mm -hmm. it on in some way would is that a possibility
1: I've, you know, I've trained a couple of people. Uh, one guy's uh, Manali Flores and another guy, Dominic Roscioli, who can, still comes up here. He's building his mm. own guitars now. And they've picked up a lot of technical skill from me and, and probably a lot of insight, but I feel like I'm still developing
0: mm. I'm, uh, now. I I that, would, yeah, I, sorry. sorry to interrupt again, yeah. but I think the technical skill is something that's more available than this kind of intuitive knowledge mm. that you've got. Like how, how
1: can you communicate that and not have it? Yeah, it's difficult. Like with 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 my people, I've I've trained. What I, I try and do is I try and guide them into making their own instruments, which give them their own understanding of how an instrument might work. Because there's no one way to make an instrument work. Like for example, if you want to make the top of a guitar flexible, you can make the edge thin, or you can make the sides flexible, and it will flex on the sides, or you can change the span of the guitar so the size of the internal blocks which hold the edge the soundboard to the to the edge so therefore the span of the lower barrel of the guitar if it's smaller it'll move less than if it's bigger so you know there's different ways of coming at the same problem Uh, if you want a guitar top to have a fundamental resonance of f sharp in its air cavity resonance you can do that by making the back loose you can do that by making the the braces smaller and the top thicker or you can have the top thinner and the braces smaller you can have you can vary the size of the sound hole Uh, so all of these things will can produce a good guitar but they have to be in harmony Mm. so there's not really any point in looking inside someone's guitar and going oh look the braces are much higher than my braces I'll make higher braces on my guitar and it will sound as good as that guitar. It doesn't work like that. Mm. So by teaching someone you've got to try and teach them how to think in those terms for yeah, themselves. I yeah. And I certainly would like to pass that knowledge on um, but again, it's finding the right people and also it's quite difficult because how do you pass that on? You have to employ someone and I don't really want to employ someone I get it. formally. you know if you've got a son or a daughter that's interested right they come down after school and learn but i don't have that so it kind of if the right person came along in the right situation i'd love to pass that on you know yeah but i've you know i think i've passed on a fair bit of my my ideas as far as the construction goes and i've got a lot of really interesting construction ideas i've passed a lot of that on yeah Yeah.
0: and maybe maybe the other aspect the more nuanced aspects are things that you have to learn yourself anyway
1: yeah i think you do i mean it depends on what you're doing i mean if you want to build a functional instrument that's that's reliable and sounds pretty good it's it's not so hard i mean you can teach a cabinet maker to do that Mm. if but if you want to train and create someone that's trying to push the boundary at the edge and trying to create their masterpiece then that's a whole different ball game.
0: Yeah, a whole different ball game and a whole different mindset too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which we've kind of been touching on the whole way through this conversation, isn't it? Like there is a special mindset that you need to mm. even attempt it.
1: Mm. You have to have a certain character, maybe character flaw. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I um, this is call it a character trait. <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think I look at classical guitar players, and in a way, they're quite. They're quite similar in that they set themselves an almost impossible goal yeah. of, of perfection yeah. and they lock themselves up by themselves for an yeah, incredibly long period of time. And practice and practice. You know, it takes a certain type of person to be a classical guitar player as well. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure that you can apply it to a lot of different things. Yeah. One of the things that is
0: coming out, I think, pretty yeah. strongly about in these all, all these conversations is the notion of practice and how important that practice is mm. in whatever it is. That you do, life even. It doesn't matter, you name it, practice. Mm. I like the word practice because it's not an end result, it's a journey. Yeah. You yeah. are practicing and your luthery here is a practice. Mm. And my cabinet making studio, for instance, I would call that a practice.
1: Yeah, and that's a good word, isn't it? Like, no, I like uh, it. because it, it does imply that, you know, you're doing something with the hope of improving yourself. Uh, and also, yeah, like you said, it's a journey. And uh, yeah, I, that's what I see I'm doing. I'm coming down, i'm I'm not trying to produce the same thing every time. i'm no. I'm always trying to make something new and and something better. Yeah And uh,
0: when we spoke on the phone before this interview talking about chasing a sound, mm. can you talk about that?
1: This, you have to have a sound in your head, you're trying to build, I guess. And being a player really helps that because you understand it from a player's perspective. As well as you know from a listener 's perspective what what something should feel like, because a guitar can feel very different to what it sounds out front sometimes as well mm. but there 's a certain thing you know people talk about volume as the most important thing, and that 's because the uh, classical guitar's traditionally been a bit quieter than other orchestral instruments, so if you play with a violin it 'll get drowned out, play with the piano it 'll get drowned out. So it's never really kind of made it into this, to being a, you know, a successful classical instrument. So the getting more volume for a player is a huge thing. But there's a quality which I call openness in the sound, which I think is much more important than the volume. The volume is important, but it's, the way I would explain it is if, if you've got a, a muffled piece of music, you can turn that up loud, but it's still a muffled piece of music. Or you can have a very clear piece of music that's in a mastering studio it's beautifully mastered you know so the frequencies are already audible and it's beautifully recorded Mm. and played at a lower volume will be much more pleasing than the muffled music played at a loud volume so guitars are very like very much like that so you're trying to produce a quality of sound and so you have to have some understanding of of the frequencies of the human ear so in sensitivity wise we're very sensitive to probably about 5k um, Five thousand hertz, which we would perceive as 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 kind of the air in the sound, and even above that we can hear up people of our age maybe hear up to about twelve or thirteen thousand k kids can go up to twenty thousand, but even higher frequencies influence the lower frequencies in their hum in their harmonics in the music, so you know a mastering engineer can add twenty thousand hertz to the sound and you can hear it even though you can't hear mm-hmm. to 20,000 hertz. Mm-hmm. So, and typically the other thing mastering engineers do is they, they try and pull out the lower frequencies like about 250, 300 hertz, which is where all the mud is. So if you think about that in guitar construction, you're trying to create a sound which is clear, um, which has an abundance of high frequencies and not an overpowering lot of low frequencies and I mean the way I do that is you look at the wood um, not as producing the sound but the wood as absorbing the sound so you go what what frequencies does that wood absorb and if you pick up a piece of wood and you drop it on a bench and it sounds like a wet sock it's absorbing the high frequencies if you drop it on the bench and it sounds like a piece of glass then it's not absorbing the high frequencies. So it goes, it goes to follow that the pieces of wood that sound like pieces of glass are not going to absorb the high frequencies of the instrument. They become more apparent. Yeah, yeah. Added to that, the lower frequencies have a lot more energy than the higher frequencies, so you've got to control them. Yeah. And the little areas on the soundboard that are between the struts, the braces under the soundboard, they act like little mini tweeters on in a you know, oh, sound yeah. system. So they're producing a lot of high frequencies. For them to work, the thickness of the top has to be very specific, you know, to the piece of the flexibility of the piece of wood. So it'll move just the right amount. And then there's the, you know, the material the back and sides are made from. The, the wood, the sound flies around within the instrument. Uh, you know, it's various things like that, which you pay attention to. And I it's a little bit like winemaking in some respects. If you get good grapes, <laughs> you're going to get a reasonable wine, yeah, yeah. as long as you don't do something stupid. That follows also with musical instruments. If you don't do something stupid and you've got really good materials, it'll be a pretty good instrument. But just it becomes more and more difficult to get those finer, you know, fine little things which you chase down. And a lot of those adjustments now for me have to happen after the instrument's strung. Oh, so in, okay. I go in through the sound hole, and that's an open-ended, very scary experience. Oh, I
0: can absolutely imagine.
1: And my friend Michel Bruick, Bruick from um, Germany, who I'm good good mates with, he's come over here, and I've come over, gone over to Germany a few times. He's a fantastic luthier, and he came over a couple of years ago and worked with me in the workshop for a couple of weeks. And he made me a little kind of string spreader, which you can pop into the, between the strings so you can get your hand in the sound hole without dropping the string tension. Mm. And he wrote on it, only courage. <laughs> <laughs> because, and of course I knew exactly what he means yeah. because you go in there and, you know, you've built this beautiful sort of thing and you're trying to change an aspect of the sound and it's like sort of going in under the hood of a, a new car and sort of playing with the electronics with a blindfold on you know like it's you don't quite know what you're going to do but you're kind of going with your intuition a bit you, you do various things you look at the top and see where it's distorting this is the top moves under string tension and that gives you some insight into where the braces are pushing the the stresses into the top uh you measure the resonant frequency so there's an air cavity resonance there's a first mode resonance which is the whole soundboard moving like a speaker cone there's a second dipole which is where the that big speaker cone splits into two yeah. and then there's a, the next dipole where it sp- splits into four and you can sprinkle tea leaves around on the top of the instrument and vibrate it um, and see where they move i see the soundboard a lot like a tarp that where water falls on so mm. if you string up a tarp in your backyard and it rains and the water water pulls to the low spot, on a soundboard that's like the part that the energy moves towards and it can vibrate too fast and it Mm. can burn one frequency off really too fast. So what you do is you stiffen that bit of soundboard, which is kind of like putting a pole under the tarp where the water's pulled to, so the water runs somewhere else. So if you stiffen that area of the soundboard, then the sound... It go somewhere else. Because
0: if you're sanding, you're taking material away that's reducing Mm. the stiffness, but you're talking about actually
1: adding Mm. stiffness. So there's two things, the stiffness and mass. So they both do the same thing, but in slightly different ways. So um, if you imagine mass as like energy goes to try and move something, if it doesn't want to move, it goes somewhere else. Mm. Mass is weight. So you can go in there and you can glue something heavy in that spot. Yep. Or you can glue a little strut in, and I, I do it with rare earth magnets. So okay. I, put a, I put a magnet on the outside of the guitar, and I put a magnet on the brace, and I put some glue on the brace, and I just reach in, and it pops onto the right spot. <laughs> and then when the glue goes off, I take the brace out. Yep. Uh, so yep. all of those things, are when you go inside the guitar afterwards, and you start influencing the sound. I, I won't say changing... Mm. Because no, you're
0: nudging it towards what you what you've got in your head,
1: which is it's a cake that's been baked, and yeah. you can't turn a carrot cake into a banana cake. No, but you could add a bit of you know salt, or you can mm. add a bit of butter, or you know. Is there a way of quantifying this notion of openness? Uh, yeah, I'd say the the best way would be to think of a um, a recording that goes. a mastering engineer, and maybe a lot of people listening wouldn't know what a mastering engineer is, but typically a piece of music gets recorded in a recording studio, and then before it's put onto a CD, it's all mixed, and it's in a kind of format that you would expect a a finished CD to be in, but the mastering engineer just fiddles with the frequencies a little bit to try and make it perfect, make each track uh, match each other as much as possible, so the openness of sound is, like I said, I'd say it's, it's related to the frequency range. So one is tuning something to the most sensitive areas of the human hearing, which are around about 5K or, you know, say 1K up to 8K, 5K being the epicentre of it, uh, and then getting rid of the mud down the bottom. Another way of looking at it would be to say... If you've got a certain amount of energy that can come out you can, and you want to choose the frequencies, the spectrum of frequencies, so if you, there's only a certain amount of sound that can come out of a speaker, if you allow more high frequencies in the sens- sensitive part of the human range to be produced, human hearing range to be produced, and less of the low frequencies, you push the balance that way, the music will sound brighter, clearer, and more open. Whereas closed is kind of muffled. That's the important thing, to get those balances. And then you've got to get your string-to-string balance right. And then you've got to get the separation of the notes. So, um, yeah. so, and then you've got to get tone colour. So like a variation, players will go, oh, I like this guitar, but I can't produce um, any vibrato. Or, you know, there's not a wide range of color available to me. They'll say things like that to you and, you know, and then you've got to go, oh, color. How do I get yeah, more yeah, color? Yeah. What does like, that mean? Yeah. What do I change in the guitar to get more color in it? You know, like, and sometimes you've just kind of, you've got to go, oh, yeah, you know, and you just sort of go home. And that's where sometimes where the intuitive part comes in. I think it goes into your subconscious and it goes around and around in your head a bit. And then somehow your brain does things sometimes you're not aware of. And over a long period of time, there's part of conscious, part part of your development is conscious, and part of it is subconscious. If you're working with material yeah. a lot, you just start doing things, and you don't know why you do it. God, that's interesting. Or you pick up pieces of wood, and they don't speak to you. Like I've made soundboards; they're ready to go on a guitar, and I just go, yeah, no, nah, it's not doing it." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I've, and people go, "Why?" You know, like. I'll show them a sample and they say, "Oh, what guitar is this going on?" You know, and I'll say, uh, oh, it's just one I'm not using." And They'll go, "Why?" And I say, oh, "I don't know. Yeah. It just, it's just not speaking to me." You know, it's, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound good. Nine times mm. out of ten, when your intuition is telling you something, mm. like, it's right. Or maybe ninety times out of ten. No. <laughs> if you've got <laughs> Nine, a little 9. voice in 9. there that's
0: saying, <laughs> "Careful now." Maybe that you should be listening to that voice. It's that
1: thing I'm sure you know working with sharp tools. Mm-hmm. Just before you stick a chisel in your hand, you think, oh, I shouldn't be pushing this chisel this way. <laughs> just for a split second. I did oh, it with goodness. myself yesterday. I got a band aid on my oh. finger. I stuck a Stanley knife on my finger a split second before I did it. Oh, no, I should be doing this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then yeah. there you go. Most often it's like that. Definitely.
0: What about Australian timbers?
1: Yeah, look, there's a. There's a slight dilemma using Australian timbers in classical guitars in that people are, well, they have been in the past, very conservative with wood choices. Um, So there's rosewoods, mahogany, ebony, spruce, cedar. These woods are very established to building fine instruments. And when you introduce a new timber, you know, you can can create questions about whether or not that timber is as good or as expensive as the traditional timbers and then that makes an impact on whether or not you can sell an instrument. So when you're starting out, this is a big problem because you want to make sure you make you don't want to pose any questions. Mm. When you become a bit more established, you can start to do what you like a bit more. I I love Australian blackwood. Mm. I think it's really a superb tone wood and I'd be using it much more if I could, but I do still have to build you could
0: a, you can't because the market's
1: not Open yeah, for that? Yeah, the or? market's not super open for it. Like I would create problems for myself or I wouldn't be able to sell the instruments for as much money. Yep. But I have sneakily introduced it into the, into the guitars in that I make two types of construction for the back and sides. One is a solid wood traditional construction and the other is what I call a unidirectional lamination which is three layers of wood and the grain all goes in the same direction And I use a very special epoxy resin, which I get that has no plasticizer in it. Okay. It goes like glass. Yeah, right. And I also use a carbon fibre matrix in there. So basically you get this kind of super hard crack-proof back and side construction that sounds very, very good tonally. Yeah, okay. The reason I I do solid woods is that some people prefer, still prefer the traditional nature of the solid timbers. But for the unidirectional lamination that i do the solid core is blackwood yeah and uh i use blackwood carbon fiber and this special epoxy resin yeah, yeah yeah
0: that's the reason you've got very thin veneers
1: <clears throat> yes yeah i use oh
0: looking around here i can see top sets and there's a few up there i can see backs and sides but i expected to see a lot thicker backer side, and you've got a lot of thin mm. veneers
1: yeah yeah there's i mean there's a lot up up there on that there shore, there is a lot up there. There's a lot of wood up there. there. Yeah. So uh, Australian blackwood is probably the best Australian wood. Um, I'm also trying to incorporate cypress into the instruments because I love the smell of it and it's also really mm. fantastic wood to work with. And and they're basically pencil pines. So I'm on the hunt for pencil pines. <laughs> if anyone's got one, yeah, pretty much. Um, I've got a little bit of that wood, but if I mm. see one coming down, I'll I'll snap snaffle it. Cypress is a, you know, it's native to Italy and... Lebanon? I think it goes right down there, down to Lebanon. Goes all through Italy, Spain. But it grows all around Adelaide as well. And it's also the wood that flamenco guitars is made from, the back and sides of flamenco guitars.
0: Yep. You don't use King Billy Pine on the tops.
1: No. uh, People do talk about that a lot, but it's very heavy. And, you know, it's just too heavy. Lovely timber the top of the guitar there's only really two choices and that's spruce and uh, cedar but it's not it's not the central we're american talking, cedar we're talking like western red western cedar western red cedar yep. is the mm. latin name and you know it has to be especially cut like it's it's got to be quarter sawn growth rings have to be right it's got to be the right weight it's got to be prepared yeah there's and they're
0: probably really old trees too <coughs> i would imagine
1: uh, yeah, pretty much pretty old, but I I do make sure any timber I buy is sustainably harvest, harvested. Yeah, and I solar power the workshop, and um, it's important to me. And you know I think it's an interesting dilemma actually using a lot of these woods are uh, uh, you know nasty naughty, sorry naughty woods they come from Amazon rainforest some of the traditional woods or and people will go well how could you be an environmentalist and use these woods and that that's a fair question. But I think it's about, if you look at what we do, we use such small amounts of this wood and what we produce is very, very expensive instruments. And, and so you, when you value add, or add, add to a product, it becomes worth much more. The, the problem is that this value adding of this wood doesn't get back to the local people where the wood is cut.
0: It's not cut for the objects that you're building. It's cut for just farmland. Yeah. It's cut and burned.
1: I mean, if we could repurpose these incredible woods for musical instruments and very fine craft and furniture and stop them being used in plywood and panelling and stuff like that, then there'd be a good income for local people and the resource would be managed properly. But unfortunately, it's not. But I, one way I deal with my conscience on it is I carbon offset through Green Fleet for my house and my workshop mm. and I produce solar power, power on the roof and I make sure everything is sustainably Mm. Managed. I use a very small amount of wood, really, mm. for guitars. But I do feel like at least I can sort of do something like that. Yeah, look, it's... Uh,
0: yeah. What about the availability of these timbers?
1: Well, it's becoming less and less, and they're all getting listed on, on CITES, which is the uh, um, convention limiting trade of endangered species. So recently... All of the Dalbergia woods, which are the rosewoods, rosewoods. were added. Mm-hmm. And but, ebony too. Yeah, ebony. Uh, African ebony is still okay. That's Appendix 2, I think. But what it means is you have to get... If you've got old stock, which, which I do, um, then you have to get permits before you can uh, export anything. But it's really difficult because you've got to apply individually for each export. You can't get a blanket sort of permit for all the wood you've got. And it can take up to six weeks to get a reply so commercially it's like really difficult so what i'm doing is i'm i'm really using non sighties listed woods in pretty much all of my guitars even though i've got some rosewoods i don't have a lot but i would be using it but i can't
0: does it sound better i mean you're using blackwoods in the back and the the rosewoods are used in their fingerboards (laughs) and in the back and sides yeah yeah
1: Look, I've, um, yeah, it, I've talked a lot about the soundboard. We talked a lot about soundboard weight and pro, you know, most of the sound of the guitar comes out of the soundboard. Mm-hmm. As far as the character of the back and sides, it's more related to the density of the wood. So, for example, a flamenco guitar has a very short explosive sound and that's because the back and sides are made of cypress and they move very quickly and they um, release the energy very quickly, whereas a heavier wood like rosewood acts a little bit like a capacitor in an electric circuit stores the sound for a little bit while and releases a little bit more slowly so the sound becomes smoother more sustained more compressed so if you use indian rosewood or if you use ziracote or if or vengay or padauk any of these woods they've all got a similar kind of density so they behave in a similar way people do talk about the character of these woods but i sort of believe more that it's more based on the density and the thickness of the wood is the character and i'd in blind tests i think it'd be very very difficult to distinguish and probably the exception to that would be brazilian rosewood which is the holy grail it is yeah. uh, i don't use it i can't get it legally and ethically i can't bring myself to use it, it. Mm. but if you get a piece of Brazilian rosewood, it's it's like glass. It's so resonant, and that definitely it can add an openness and an air to an instrument. Um, okay. But you know, really, it's a it's a material I just can't consider. Yeah. Uh,
0: when you walk into a workshop, <coughs>
1: what brings you the most joy? The sniffed the smell of the wood, um, <laughs> the jigs. Yeah, go um, jigs. <laughs> the. Uh, I just, you know, it's just. so I guess it's the anticipation of what's coming, you know, the the instrument that's coming, you know, like there's... I mean, I love just getting hold of the wood and ploughing into it, you know, like at the early stages of the guitar and roughing it out because by the time you've finished an instrument, you're so fed up with having your magnifying glasses on and picking around with the tiny little details that you just want to grab a hunk of wood and work with it. But then as the instrument progressive, you, progresses, you have this... Kind of Anticipation Of what it might Sound like So there's always There's always Something in there That's you know Drawing you in But there can also Be a dread If you've got an Instrument that's Not going well And you've got to Try and you know Yeah god yeah try and bring it together. Yeah, what you've is got, going on you've got here? a deadline yeah. and yeah, the finish yeah. isn't working out. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know? oh,
0: yeah, you've just dropped it or something. you just happened, dropped forbid. it, yeah. You don't do that, do
1: you? Oh, yeah. No, I've dropped drop oh. things. <laughs> 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 you drop it and uh, the oh, yeah. top gets dented. Into... No, I've totally wrecked instruments. They've oh. gone upside down onto the ground. Not for a while. The hard thing about what I'm doing is I can't have a bad day. Like, I can't slip with a chisel one day and just go, oh, look, you know, I just worked on your guitar for a month. Like 29 of the days, I just did a great job. But this one day, I just slipped with the chisel. So there's just this little ding in it. Don't worry about it. You know, you mm. can't, it has to be perfect. Yeah. So if you do fuck up something, sorry, am I allowed to say that word? Yeah, I do, go for it, yeah. I do stuff up something, then, um, then I, I've got to undo it or fix it or disguise it. You become yeah. very good at disguising things yeah. when you build instruments, how to disguise little slip-ups.
0: I think any cabinet maker would be pretty good at doing stuff like that. Mm. And you've got to do it straight away too, I think. You Mm. can't think about it. You've got to fix that.
1: You know, what I've always told people I've trained is if something's bothering you, just route it out and do it again. Yeah. Pull it off, do it again. Because at that stage, it's a few hours work. But if you continue with that, you're just looking at it and it doesn't make you feel good.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's really good advice. Yeah, and don't, yeah.
1: you know, write it down to experience. Don't give yourself a hard time. Just learn from it. You know, just go, okay, why did that happen? Part of the way I trained myself was whenever I was struggling with something, I would go, okay, this is the next thing I need to address. Yeah. Why am I struggling with this? If I was, yeah. you know, if I was a master craftsman, I wouldn't be struggling with this. So that that would be the thing I would next address. So it might be the way that I'm holding something, a clamp, or it might God, be my. God, that's an interesting way of looking at it. God, might be that my my tools aren't sharp. Yeah. You know, so it actually um, you train yourself by your feedback for, of your work. You yeah. Know, of what's if happening if you're open and
0: listening yeah. to it. Yeah. God, that's really interesting. Mm. Do you have a superpower outside of guitar making? Oh
1: Invisibility? I'm not too bad. I'm a, I'm a good surfer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's really cool. Yeah,
1: I can surf pretty well. Yeah. Um you know, like I'm I'm okay at a lot of things really. I'm, um but guitar building's the thing I'm I'm able to be really good at. Yeah. You know, like I I mean I I could be a reasonable I'm a reasonable guitar player, but I'm never gonna be a professional guitar player I'm a reasonable guitar player I can make people dance <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's with the jigs <laughs> you make jigs on the
1: guitar we make people dance we've got a band to help me but, um, uh, Have but you I'm, got a band are you in a band oh yeah yeah I've always been in bands Have yeah I? yeah what sort of music do you play ah oh, um, I love surf music you know yeah, I, I got right. into surf music really early and dial. I was a band in a band in the 80s called the Luau which is quite quite a good band so I put myself through uni yeah right, really in various bands, and then I was in another band called GT Stringer. I know oh, GT did Stringer reasonably well. Yeah, yeah. And then I've got a band called Velvet Moth with the Capritus brothers, Nick and Dennis, and Gilly on drums, Gilly Atkinson on drums, and that's a great band. Yeah. Uh, and then I've got another band called The Young and the Wrestlers, where we all get dressed up in wrestling outfits and <laughs> play surf music, but don't tell any classical any classical guitar players. No. though. No.
0: No classical guitar players. Uh,
1: no. It's just a release for me, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, super but superpowers. Yeah, guitar building is definitely the thing I'm best at. Oh. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool about mm. the bands too. I should have
0: asked that right at the front. And surf music too. That goes yeah, it goes so well. Who's your favourite? performer of surf music what's your favorite song for instance or
1: oh uh wow that's an interesting question oh i love the ray beats they were a fantastic band danny 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 can't remember his second name he was the guitar player he also uh now plays in the lost straight jackets not danny Gatton. no not danny Gatton. um look it up on google yeah uh the ray beats had an album called it's only a movie Back in the 80s, it's a fantastic album. Check mm-hmm. that out on Spotify if it's yeah. on there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that would be, that, those guys would be sort of amongst my favourites. But current bands now, I'd say Lost Straightjackets are one of the best bands. I mean, Dick Dale was great. Not really into that kind of like superhero twangy stuff. <laughs> there's another band called Tremolo Gut. They're fantastic. They're, uh-huh. I think they're Swedish. Um, there's another band called The Chups. They're really cool. They're still going. So, oh, and then there's... Who's the guy that played the slide guitar? Um Australian uh, or...? No, he did a song called Highway Patrol. I don't know. Look up. Do a Google search, everyone. Highway Patrol. I've got to get my phone now. It's a fantastic. It's fantastic. Oh. He plays a sort of a... a t- I think it's like a telecaster. But it's sort of got a slide guitar hanging off it.
0: Oh, like a lap steel. Yeah. Do you know, one of the things I wanted to do as the outro to all of these was do different versions of Miseralu. Oh, okay. I could not find a royalty-free version. I know they're out there, but I can't – it's so hard to verify that this is a royalty Uh, because Miseralu goes way back to his Armenian – Dick Dale's Armenian heritage and uh, there's so many different versions.
1: Yeah, there you go. Anyway,
0: that's what I had in my head. When the apocalypse comes – Has it come already? No, it hasn't. Will you have any useful skills? Sure. I
1: can fix anything pretty much. (laughs) I keep bees. Hey. So I make honey. I make wine. Yeah. I can roast coffee. So I can trade. I think honey, honey is the ultimate trade. It's like a bucket of sunshine. And, you know, like, so they would be the best skills I'd have, I think. <laughs> or can you
0: be pretty good as a plumber too? Even I could now. probably
1: do a bit of plumbing, but, you know, I'm getting a bit old for it now. <laughs> if I bend over to get down a trench, I can't stand up again properly. Oh, uh, right. So. Uh, uh, yeah.
0: How useful is music to our society these days?
1: Wow. Hard to imagine a society without music. I mean, everyone listens to, to it all the time. I mean, everyone I know, and and so many people make music. I think one of the problems though is is that it's so available. It's a problem. Mm. It's a blessing and a curse. You know, like when I think about how special certain albums were to me when I when I grew up. You know how iconic those albums were and how you treasured them. And then, but then how easy it is to come across music now. How cheap it's become. So, you know, if you're on, if you can get everything for free on on Spotify or virtually free, do you value it as much? Is it as important? Is it as important for the artist? So I think it's incredibly important, but I don't think society recognises it. I don't think they appreciate it for its, as how important it is and I don't think they respect their musicians enough. I mean, you know, why why are all these musicians sort of out of work and not getting getting support you know for all the lost gigs at the moment I saw something some post on might have been Facebook about how musicians were the first ones to come out and do live aid gigs and support bushfires and so forth and yet they're the last ones to get support in the government package for this uh, for this virus and -hmm. loss of income Mm. so you know hard to tell people how to Got to go and see gigs, got to play, buy their music. The way, the way musicians are making money, mostly now, is gigs and merchandise. They don't mm. make money off their recordings anymore. Mm. People want it for free. That's mm. kind of sad, that. I think it's incredibly, mm. that's my answer, it's incredibly important, but people don't realise it.
0: Mm. It's fundamental. All the societies that have existed where music is verboten have failed. Mm. And there have been societies like Christian sects and what have you where music and dancing is Mm. not to be done. You know, I suppose the Mennonites are still hanging around and the Amish are still hanging around, but really, honestly.
1: Best decision you ever made? To become a guitar builder, I think, and follow my my dream rather Mm. than just be a plumber. Wasn't a popular decision with my parents at the time. I can fully
0: appreciate that.
1: Um, you know, I had a solid trade, um, and I just wanted to go off and dabble in my shed, doing something that was. I mean, it's really hard. People don't. People don't sort of. It's easy now for people to go, "Oh, wow, you've done really well," and you know. But you know, you you'd have to overcome that if you're following your dream. And maybe you don't do well, but it's still worthwhile to follow your dream. You know, do what you want to do. If you can. I mean, obviously, some people can't. Uh, you know, they, they have to work. In There's certain... a set of ingredients. It's yeah.
0: easier when you're young.
1: It is much uh... easier when you're young or very old. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And established, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to also take a pretty big risk to do it. And um, the sacrifices that you make, I mean, you know, if you're not following your mainstream, you know, money earning and job making, I mean, socially, it can be difficult, you know, the people you start... To socialize with, or you know, it might be you know, for me, it was like sometimes I had to just work at night or on weekends, like particularly when my business was starting to take off and I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I explained in America before I had these orders coming in, I didn't know how to build guitars, and yet I was had orders coming in. At that time, it was really hard because you know, I could have been in the age where I was sort of enjoying you know life with friends starting a family doing all that sort of stuff but really i was consumed with my guitar building mm. and that there's a price to be there's paid for price. that yeah yeah. There is. yeah yeah Yeah, i was doing what i wanted to do yeah I, no no one forced me
0: yeah you're making choices
1: yeah but which you know is good. but in the end i think it was a really good choice i mean i, I feel like i've done something worthwhile and I've, yeah. and I've i've made an impression you know made yeah. a mark yeah, um, yeah, 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 and yeah. created. Yeah, yeah, it's really rewarding. I mean, that's the yeah, that's why people should should do those. Follow your dreams.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah. Have you ever made a bad decision?
1: Made plenty of bad decisions, <laughs> uh, but you know, on what level? Like, I mean, <laughs> I've stuck chisels in my fingers, and I've <laughs> uh, had failed relationships. You know, they're two different two different things. But have I? Have I made any really bad decisions? I've had missed missed opportunities in retrospect, but I don't think that's a bad decision. I'm okay with most of the things. You know, there's certain things you'd think back in life and you'd do differently, or you'd say differently to people, or you'd behave differently. Mm. But you wouldn't be the person you are today if you if you weren't.
0: That's exactly the thing, isn't it?
1: But then I've also gotten yeah. away with things that I shouldn't have done properly. <laughs> As, as everyone, you don't have to. Oh, you know, every, we'll everyone, have on everyone does stupid things like you're yeah, speeding in their car. And when, like when, when I was, uh, you know, a teenager, just everyone got drunk and drove home. You know, we used to drink drive and yeah, on the of,
0: roof of the car, preferably. Yeah,
1: yeah hanging out the window, no seatbelts. You know, they're bad decisions. Like today, you would go like if I'd like come unstuck and hurt someone, I'd say that'd be the worst decision I ever made in my life, but I got away with it. Mm. You know, as did everyone else at the time. Well not everyone, but mostly. Most yeah. people I knew. So, you know, that's it's a hard that's a hard question. But I haven't there wouldn't be anything I'd sort of single out and go yeah, work out pretty really bad. For it me. As
0: like, there's always shades of grey and bad decisions at yeah. the time have good outcomes. Good decisions at the time may have bad outcomes. And you can't really tell until down the track. And even then there's a a sort of a, I look at it, a waveform, you know, good. Bad. It's always shades of grey. Yeah. If you could go back and give advice to a young trim, what would it be? Mm. Do you think you'd listen?
1: It'd be, yeah, it's it's a difficult one because, you know, what I would tell myself I wouldn't understand because I hadn't been through my experiences. <laughs> That's exactly right. I know. So uh, You'd have to really explain it. So, you know, you have to go through the experiences. I probably, you know, I'd, one thing I do regret, I suppose, is, is you know, just taking it a bit too seriously. I mean, I was 15 years old and I went straight into the building trade and then, you know, worked re- got worked really hard... And mm. then I went straight from there to uni and worked really hard. Yeah. And then I went, you know, started a business work worked really yeah. hard. Yeah. And, you know, meanwhile, a lot of my friends, you know, were going to Cactus and going surfing and going working in the snow up at Falls Creek. And, you know, maybe I'd go back to my 15-year-old self and I'd say, hey, take a couple of years off, mm. you know, like just enjoy yourself for a couple of years. Yeah. You know, and uh, maybe don't take it all so seriously. I, know, think
0: the, I think the... For me too, I think definitely don't take it so seriously. I think it's a really good piece of advice. I don't know if taking... Working hard isn't the issue. It's just the way you perceive that work.
1: I was really... I still am, but I was really critical, self-critical and self-analytical. And I think, you know, I gave much more of a sort of toss about it than anyone else did, you know. And I think, you know, it's nice... When you see people that are kind of a bit more free and open and not so self-critical, I think it's a good thing. I think I, I could tell myself to just ease up a bit. <laughs> because really in the end, when I've, you know, the things, when I, you know, selling guitars for me is never, it's never something I've really angsted over, it just happens. And if, yeah. I could, if I could have applied that to sort of other areas of my life, like I've never really worried about making money or how much money I've got because I've got enough coming in. That it's been okay. I think you know if you could apply that same philosophy and be a bit more carefree about other areas of your life, that that would be the ideal way to be. I think yeah, I would have enjoyed some things in retrospect more than I did some yeah, some of periods time. of my life.
0: Yeah, Yeah, contemplate or something.
1: But I think I think you know in life you're. Where you get from where you've been is what's important. Like if you start off and you've had like amazing family life and amazing parents and you've had money to start a business and physically beautiful and all these things come together, of course, you know, it's going to, you know, if you achieve something, it's going to be great, but it's not as impressive as if you come up from somewhere, you know, with no money and no skills and, and, you, and you do something, you know, you have to work really hard. and The
0: overcoming...
1: I think when you judge what you've done in life, look where you started and say, you know, how or, or where you were last year. If you're just judging your last year and just go, am I better this year than I was last year? And that's what's important, you know.
0: Yeah. Mm. It's been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time. Yeah,
1: cool. I love to talk. So <laughs> I don't get, I'm in the shed by myself all the time. <laughs> Well, thanks for being really open, and I appreciate it. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Can people get in touch with you? Yeah, yeah. I've got a website. It's really super basic because I just don't really want anyone to find it unless they're looking for me. Like a one-page website, Mm. redgateguitars.com or redgateguitars.com.au. They'll both work. It's got my email address on it. Or come to a gig, come see Velvet Moth.
0: That's it, Velvet Moth. When are you playing next? You're probably not for
1: six months Well, we've had, like... Between the bands I play in, I think there's been about 12 gigs cancelled, so there's no no gigs at all. No. So who knows? Will there ever be live music again?
0: I'd be willing Mm. to bet that there will be. In fact, I think people will be pouring out to it, and uh, we wait and see, but let's hope. Yeah. Rock and roll. (laughs) But no, Get out to a live gig. Yeah. Rock and roll, if that's what rocks your boat, and otherwise, if you're really into classical music,
1: yeah, yeah. Let's do that too. Thanks, <laughs> Jim. <laughs> <For extreme. laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Adrian.